The phones at Buffalo's homicide office have been ringing with tips from the public aimed at capturing the 22 caliber killer. Right, listen now, uh, you don't have to give me your name, but I would like to have it in case uh, we do locate this man to make sure we're talking about the same guy or not. Police believe it is one killer because ballistic experts have determined from the shell casings it was the same gun, perhaps similar to one of these, that killed 14-year-old Glenn Dunn and 31-year-old Emmanuel Thomas of Buffalo, critically wounded another Buffalo man, and may have killed Joseph McCoy of Niagara Falls. Chief, what are the possibilities this killer could strike again? I see no reason uh, in uh, for him stopping, really. Uh, he has uh, killed uh, uh, people during the day and uh, killed uh, people at night. This killer, if it's one person, has taken the liberty in a very daring way of committing these crimes in open areas, sometimes in daylight. What does this tell you about his character and perhaps what he is saying to you as the authority figure? Well, I think that the individual is a sick man, and uh, I feel that uh, he could probably be helped if he would only uh, let it be known that he needs help. This is the only composite of the suspected killer. It is being circulated by Cheektowaga police. Six additional men will be added to the Buffalo Homicide Office by Commissioner Cunningham. Twenty officers and detectives have been assigned to find the 22 caliber killer before he may strike again. Rich Newberg, News 4, Buffalo. The Commodores concert was one of two major events drawing black audiences downtown tonight, and the 22 caliber killings of three black males were on the minds of just about all the men we talked with. I'm going right after the concert. Yeah, I'm scared. I'm scared, but I'm with my friends and things, you know, and they're going to take care of me and things. That's what it's be about. I'm more or less worried about, you know, if the security, how's the security around here and, elsewhere and throughout the city. So I don't think I'll be at ease until something's actually done about it. As with most concerts, anyone with full pockets was frisked at the odd entrances. But security officials didn't expect the killer to make a showing tonight. No reason to be panicked, personally, you know. Because I feel it's a sick person. He gets people isolated. He doesn't come in a crowd and try to pull anything like this. So naturally, we will be alert. The other big event tonight was the Martin Luther King Awards Banquet, where there was less noticeable concern about the killer. Councilman James Pitts also put any talk of community retaliation to rest. Racial overtones are something that uh, can be sort of calmed down if we have a good effort by the police department to find, who, find out who this person is. We are in the process of re-interviewing our witnesses in the hopes that their recall is better than it had been uh, on that uh, night when the uh, killings occurred. We feel that they have had an, op an opportunity now to uh, reflect back on uh, what happened, and if they had overlooked uh, anything, they can tell us now. So the search continues for a white male suspected of killing three black men at point-blank range and critically wounding a fourth. Rich Newberg, News 4, Update. The son of Sam, David Berkowitz, was tracked down after his car was ticketed for a parking violation. This simple infraction led to the arrest and conviction of the confessed killer of six people. Today, Assemblyman Arthur Eve asked News 4 to allow him to make a direct plea to Buffalo's Police Benevolent Association to stop the police slowdown so that the chances of catching the killer or killers of six black males in the area may be heightened. My plea to the PBA is that during this very serious time that the PBA should urge all of its members not to participate in a slowdown, that every member should be out there serving this community to its fullest, 
because the murderer might be caught on a parking violation, traveling violation, as the son of Sam was. And so I beg and I plead with the PBA, please stop the slowdown until these murderers have been caught. When you talk to people on Jefferson Avenue, you get a range of reactions and a range of theories. But there's one common denominator. Everybody is angry. I feel it's a sin and shame that uh, the Buffalo police haven't did anything about this. Uh, most black men in the neighborhood are really fear walking around now. They don't know when they can come out day or night. And, you know, I think it's a conspiracy. You know, I think it's got to be the clans or something. You know, that's what I think personally. Yeah. I mean, if the police are not doing their job, you know, per se, you know, like, they don't have to worry about it. If this individual comes in this area or, you know, like, or, you know, anywhere in the vicinity, they don't have to worry about it because he will be taken care of. While tensions are mounting in Buffalo's black community, leaders continue to call for restraint, but caution at the same time that violence in other cities erupted only after blacks lost faith in the system. The police slowdown here must end, they say. To reassure blacks in the area, the system will work for them. Rich Newberg, News 4, Buffalo. Despite those efforts, somebody or some people have a different idea. A wooden cross was set afire tonight at the corner of Brunswick and Jefferson. We arrived as Buffalo firefighters were dousing the flames. Councilman Herb Bellamy said he was shocked by this latest incident. I really don't know what to say at this point. So close. Uh, this is going to frighten the community more now, I think. I really don't know what to say. This is the first time I ever saw a cross burning in my life. Most people in the neighborhood did not want to go on camera. But some couldn't hold back their comments. Yo, man, they got to stop this stuff, man. I'm serious. They come out here and they're going to kill people up, right? They're doing all this. The police department ain't doing too much about it, I guess. They ain't caught nobody yet. If it was a black I mean, man, he would have been yeah, under the jail. Been That's under all I can say. He would have been under the jail. The DA's arson task force is now in the case. And these men will soon be joined by members of the Buffalo Police Department. It was built with a bit of time put into it. If you notice, there's parts of this cross here that were nailed on. There's a nail. There's a nail here. So whoever did it took some time building it. It was then saturated in some kind of flammable liquid, which our laboratories will be able to determine, I'm sure, and then set on fire. But whoever built this spent a few minutes at it, put some thought into it, and then ignited and left the area. Earlier in the evening, before the cross-burning incident, Local NAACP President Daniel Acker told me he is requesting that Governor Carey call the National Guard into Buffalo. The National Guard needs to come in to show some force to protect citizens. Uh, whenever there's an emergency, the National Guard is called out. Uh, we need uh, the governor concerned about this situation, the mayor, the county executive. This is, is a priority item. It's not business as usual. Because of the fact when you talk about the loss of human lives, that's something which you cannot replace. Tonight, Daniel Acker, head of the local NAACP branch, called for the National Guard to be brought out to this area. How do you feel about that? I feel at this point it should be called. I'm for it 100%. You don't think the presence of armed soldiers might uh, make matters worse? I don't think so. Because uh, we need protection now. It's a, it's a warning. Warning signal. I think we do need protection now. Arson investigators were quick to respond to the cross burning. 
and every bit of evidence will be studied to try and find out who is behind the ugly demonstration and perhaps the rash of brutal slayings that took the lives of six black males. Rich Newberg, News 4, Update. Bush was well briefed about Western New York's economic problems and also about the most recent rash of brutal killings of six black males in the area. Last night, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, talking to Buffalo's black community, took a direct political slam at Ronald Reagan. I will vote! I will vote! I will retire Reagan! I will retire racism! At a news conference today, Bush responded to the words of Reverend Jackson. But if he tried to equate... Uh, racial unrest with Governor Reagan as President of the United States. That is a grossly unfair comment with no uh, fact to back it up. Governor Reagan's record in appointment of blacks and in concern for blacks is a good record. He's a compassionate individual. Bush praised local leaders for keeping cool heads and said common sense must prevail. Bush's Buffalo visit caps a two-day campaign swing through parts of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. Bush will speak tonight to an Italian-American Columbus Day benefit at the Staffer. And Marie Rice will have a complete report at 11. Thank you so much. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, June 16, 2022, so I have been told. This is our book club fifth installment on Catherine Palinero, White Woman, Absolute Madness. We are picking up uh, chapter 7. I believe the date's October 20th through the 22nd, just literally like three days. As uh, all of chapter seven, lots of things happened during this time period. Uh, the audio segments, man, enormous gratitude. One of our listeners emailed me that uh, segment. It's actually uh, a YouTube segment. Uh, Rick Newberg, excuse me, Rich Newberg, uh, a white man reporter uh, in Buffalo, New York, during the time of the murders, uh, posted a lot of the different news segments that he did covering these killings uh, towards the end of 1980 uh, and it just gives an amazing uh, live picture of what was happening and just getting to hear some of the interviews of how people felt what they were saying at the time man that interview at the Commodores concert alone wow uh, within all of that I thought it was uh, especially important one you got to hear Leo Donovan, white man, enforcement official, taught this guy is sick. He needs help. Put asterisk, highlight, hugely important. I think I might have read some of the articles in the Buffalo Challenger talking about that already, and that will certainly come up again and again. Uh, in addition uh, to this being a, a sick white man so-called you heard the report about the cross burning even though that was reported last week allegedly that hey we think some black people might have did this now you even heard in the report about the amount of detail and all that hmm then after that you heard the talk about retaliation and you know calming all of that down even report you had black people just for people who didn't see the video that was different 
individuals classified as black who were saying, hey, the National Guard should be called. Things are not safe. We need protection. We need help. This is this is not normal. This is not normal. We need help. I mean, I just have not even heard that many times. If folks can think, when have you heard black people saying the National Guard should be called in to protect us? I don't even know if that happened in Little Rock. Anyway, uh, the final clip, uh, Jesse Jackson. I said that last week because uh, Pelinero, she mentioned that Jesse Jackson did come to the Buffalo area in the midst of all this. He did. uh, And she left out his little catchy phrase uh, about retiring racism and retiring Reagan. Not that that, you know, solved the problem, obviously. And then to hear at the time that was vice president George H.W. Bush hadn't even become president yet, uh, giving the what do you mean? trying to say Ronald Reagan is racist his record with blacks is a good record he didn't even say great or excellent or super you know it's good you know average (laughs) okay 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 (laughs) anyway uh, but again this got a lot of attention Uh, these killings uh, more of that will come anyway Two quick reports that I'll read and then we will get directly to the text. Number one, Buffalo becomes a city of fear, suspicion. This is from the Washington Post, November 5, 1980. So it's a little bit ahead of where we are in the book, but I suspect we'll get there this week. Not even reading the full report. Uh, on, And I just wanted to kind of give, a, or maybe in fact, I'll just give the one at the bottom. How about that? Because she'll probably include that. So I'll just give the part at the bottom. Uh, elsewhere, however, the murders have met have been met with indifference and some outright expressions of hostility toward blacks circulating through the taverns and doctor's offices. Here are jokes about the son of Sambo killings and the need to establish a heart fund to buy a more powerful weapon for the murderer. Civil rights leaders have received anonymously in the mail one-way tickets back to Africa. Then they mention the whole disruption at the funeral of Glenn Dunn, 14 years old. Douglas Turner, the executive director of the Courier Express, was stunned by the hostile reactions at a big Irish dinner to the black ribbon pinned to his lapel, the symbol of mourning here. A public official told him, Turner said, this is what they've been waiting for over there this is a real good break for those black leaders jesse jackson this is an opportunity for them to get up on their soapboxes a clergyman turner said he had known for years said of the murders don't you know that's the only language those people understand I will stop there since this report is from November, so she might cover this. We'll have to keep our ears perked for Son of Sambo. Now, the other quick report, I'm including this because this is in line time-wise with where we are in uh, the book, October 1980. There are so many times... There's one thing like you can they can upload articles and things online and all that, which is amazing. And I love and take advantage of it makes it so easy and quick. 
but it's even better when they upload the entire newspaper that way you can go through and flip because wow when you can see everything on the page that gives you so much information I cannot tell you the number of times that I have seen reports on the murders of black people in Buffalo directly beside reports about the death of buckwheat if people don't know buckwheat uh, I'll read you a little bit but his character was even reprised on Saturday Night Live with Eddie Murphy I'm sure you can go on YouTube and see some of Eddie, Wur Eddie Murphy as buckwheat on SNL way back when during this time period 1980s I mean pfft, does not get any more plain naked white supremacy racism than buckwheat any form so they have a report about black buffalo cab drivers I'll just give you a little bit it says the cab drivers the cab drivers killer has been dubbed the huntsman because pathologists said he cuts into the chest cavity with the authority of an experienced hunter Tom Drake one of the operators of the cab service said we had half a dozen guys call and say they're not going out no more not until this thing is over it's not just the nighttime they're scared in the daytime too the cabbies are not alone after four black males were murdered by a gunman in the space of 36 hours during the last week of September and after the slaughter of the cabbies there's talk around town of blacks buying guns to defend themselves now stop there that's there's more to this report about the Buffalo murder so literally directly beneath so if you finish the article on Buffalo the very next thing that you would read Billy Thomas 49 buckwheat of our gang dies on coast Billy Thomas 49 who played buckwheat in the our gang comedy series from 1934 to 1944 that's Essie May Washington Williams generation died yesterday of an apparent heart attack police said now that is medical apartheid and a whole lot Thomas was found in his bed by police officers who climbed through the window of his home where he lived alone after neighbors reported they had not seen him in a couple of days said coroner's investigator Philip Spada Thomas joined the troupe of our gang actors at the age of three and played in 89 films. He often wore a straw hat when he joined Spanky and Alfalfa in planning all the all kinds of mischief. In recent years, Thomas was involved in a dispute with a man named James E. Frazier, who claimed that he was the real buckwheat. The dispute was never completely settled, but Thomas got the seal of authenticity from many of his fellow players. There was only one buckwheat. William Thomas was buckwheat, said Darla Hood, a featured player in the series who died earlier this year. Fighting over buckwheat. And that's what we will pick up at. Context of white supremacy. Absolute madness. Audio segment one. Midnight seemed to be when the trail went cold. At around 2 p.m. on his last day, Shorty picked up one of his special fares at her home and drove her to the Ellicott Square building in downtown Buffalo. The fare was a woman who said she knew Shorty well. He picked her up again after she concluded her business downtown, at which time the woman noted that his mood had changed. He no longer seemed to be himself. She explained that Shorty was normally a very happy-go-lucky person, 
and it was apparent that something was bothering him. They chatted briefly on the drive home, and Shorty said that he would be at her baby's christening the following Sunday, and that he'd be bringing Zoe with him. Shorty had visited with another of his specials at her home at around 5 or 5.30 p.m. They sat in his cab talking for about 25 minutes, until Shorty got a call for a fare and left. She had anticipated seeing him again at around 7.30 p.m. when he would drive her to Bingo, but her husband had ended up driving her instead. She had called the cab company at 9.30 that night requesting Shorty to drive her home, but was told that he was not in his cab. That was very unusual, she said, since Shorty always stayed in or very close to his cab. She continued calling for him up until about midnight to no avail. Shorty spent 15 minutes at the diner with Zoe, leaving at 6.45 p.m. He then went home to see his wife and family, leaving around 8 p.m. The next confirmed location was the Little Harlem Hotel on Michigan Street. Employees said that Shorty was there at about 10 p.m. when a fight erupted between two black females and a black male cab driver. The argument was over some money, possibly cab fare, that was owed the cabbie. Shorty had intervened as peacemaker. The police had been called, but the two females left with Shorty in his cab before officers arrived. The last sighting of Shorty alive and well had been at the Sunoco gas station on Broadway and Jefferson. From 11.30 p.m. to midnight, Shorty and a fellow cabbie had hung out, watching TV on a portable that Shorty had. They had both been sitting in their own cabs. Shorty showed him a bank book for a joint account he had with Zoe. When they parted, Shorty had placed the portable TV, bank book, a camera, a pocketbook-type holder containing photographs, and an undetermined amount of cash in a green cooler. Shorty placed the cooler in the trunk of his cab on the left side. Investigators had found the cooler in the trunk with all of the items inside that the cabbie had described, except for the portable TV and the money. The cabbie said that Shorty usually carried a substantial amount of cash with him, anywhere from $800 to $1,000. He didn't see Shorty with any weapons that night or on any other occasion. He added that right after the homicides of Edwards and Jones, talk among people on the street was that the murders were over a beef in the numbers racket. The task force hadn't found anyone who either saw or heard from Shorty Jones after midnight, though different people had tried to reach him. Among those seeking cab number 56 was an employee at the Little Harlem Hotel who had called the cab company at 1 a.m. Shorty usually drove him home from work. Though the dispatcher had put the call out over the radio, Shorty had not answered, nor had he answered radio calls from his own daughter who had tried to reach him between 1 and 1.15. The next sighting of Shorty Jones had been the discovery of his body at 4.29 a.m. in the parking lot of the Tonawanda boat launch. His taxi was found that afternoon on a residential street in Buffalo, over three miles away. An intriguing detail about Shorty's cab was the location where it had been abandoned, in front of 96 Potomac Avenue, this address was two houses down from where Zoe Fontaine's father and brother lived. Another of Shorty's girlfriends had contacted the task force to suggest that this should be looked at very carefully. Zoe's father claimed that he had not seen the cab on the street that day.
Zoe's brother told police that he knew Shorty as his sister's boyfriend. He said he had never been inside Shorty's cab, but he admitted seeing it parked near his home that morning and had noticed what looked like blood on it. He said he had not been sure whether it was Shorty's cab or not. The brother voluntarily gave police his finger and palm prints, which didn't match any that were found on the cab. Detectives Williams and Montando had learned that Shorty Jones carried a gun, a small automatic three eighty, which he usually kept in a zippered bag somewhere in his cab. Shorty's wife confirmed that he had such a gun, but she had not seen it in a long time. Zoe told police that Shorty had stopped carrying the gun a few weeks prior to the murder and that he had ceased doing so at Zoe's urging. She had been afraid he might get in trouble for having it. Zoe said that Shorty was carrying a knife the last time she saw him. She had felt it in his jacket pocket when he kissed her goodbye. The knife she described sounded like the one that had been discovered a few feet from his body. None of the people who knew Jones could offer any suspects for his murder. A check of his bank records showed that he had four joint accounts, three with his wife, one with Zoe Fontaine. The accounts with his wife all had balances of less than $5. The account he shared with Zoe had a balance of $402.20. Police also checked the bank records of Parlor Edwards and found that he had a savings account at a local bank with a balance of almost $19,000. He also had a Canadian bank account. Edwards's finances appeared very robust, particularly for a man whose work pension check was $112 per month. Then again, Edwards also drew Social Security and pensions from the Army, plus whatever he earned as a cab driver, and he was reputedly tight with his money. Shorty's wife admitted that he was a numbers runner in a follow-up interview with investigators. He took bets for fares and friends and had to drop the slips off, but she didn't know where. She felt that his involvement was minimal and that he was not an upper-level person in the operation. He had told her that he didn't want to become heavily involved because people wanted credit, and he felt it was more trouble than it was worth. She said any money would have been kept in a cooler in the cab's trunk. The Jones murder investigation presented a number of red herrings. Drugs, prostitution, mistresses, gambling, racial hostility over a white girlfriend. Jones had begun driving a cab in February 1980, roughly coinciding with the resumption of his steady relationship with Zoe Fontaine. His drug sales had lately expanded beyond marijuana and pills to include PCP, the white powder known on the street as angel dust. By most accounts, his behavior on the last day of his life had been unusual, particularly his failure to answer any calls that night, even from his special fares, some of whom were also drug and betting customers. By the time his daughter had tried to reach him around 1.15 a.m., Shorty may have been dead. Further canvassing of residents on Potomac Avenue turned up a man who believed he saw the cab parked there at 3 a.m., although he wasn't positive. Then there was the statement from Shorty's friend regarding his sudden demeanor change in the early afternoon of October 8th, when it appeared that something was bothering him. Whether what was bothering Shorty was hearing word of Edwards's death could only be speculated. If this was the case, though, 
Shorty would have somehow known the fate of Parlor Edwards before the news had been made public. Aside from the shared traits of race, gender, and profession, the only other common denominator with Edwards and Jones was their alleged link to numbers. As the days of October passed and investigators delved further, the notion that both were actively involved in the mafia-controlled numbers racket and likewise had been deliberate victims for somehow running afoul of the organization took on ever greater viability and appeared much more plausible than the prospect that a deranged white man had somehow convinced two very streetwise cabbies, neither of whom were on call at the time, to drive him to remote locations in the dead of night. Zeroing in on the final movements of Parlor Edwards was a far more linear task. Armed with the information concerning the time and contents of Edwards's last meal, investigators questioned employees of the Howard Johnsons. The restaurant had not been busy in the early morning hours when Edwards was last seen there. The overnight cook recalled seeing two black males in the restaurant in the early a.m., but could not identify them. He said he didn't make a salad for anyone, but advised that a salad could have been made by the waitress on duty. Only one waitress had worked that overnight shift. She recalled seeing Edwards in the restaurant, but didn't recall the exact time and denied having made a salad for him. Investigators learned that it was against restaurant policy to prepare special orders, such as a salad, during the shift in question, and theorized that this could be the reason that the waitress denied making the salad, if, in fact, she had done so. The waitress was questioned extensively at the task force command post as to her actions and observations during the time preceding the presence of Parlor Edwards in the restaurant while he was there, and after he left, with negative results. The questioning officers noted that she appeared to be very nervous, uneasy, and evasive, and generally uncooperative during the entire duration of questioning, leading them to believe that she was not entirely truthful in her answers, and that she could possibly have supplied pertinent information concerning the activity surrounding Edwards's presence in the restaurant. A subpoena was served on the manager of Howard Johnson's, directing her to turn over all sales slips issued by the waitress during her shift that night. With the slips was a handwritten note from the waitress stating, Zero voids, zero missing, and zero overrings. The sales slips were numbered sequentially. Curiously, one was missing. The manager couldn't account for this because the slips were checked daily, she said. When officers went back to the restaurant to question the waitress again, they found she no longer worked there. According to the manager, she just stopped showing up for work one day. Among the people who placed both Edwards and Jones as actively involved in the numbers racket was, interestingly enough, Colin Cole, the victim of the strangling attempt at the Erie County Medical Center on October 10th. Police had been eager to speak with Cole but interviews kept being postponed due to his medical condition. Cole had emerged from surgery the night of his attack in very serious condition, according to the briefing Ed Cosgrove had given to reporters, and remained in the intensive care unit. Questioning by investigators had to wait until doctors deemed him well enough. Colin Cole had, however, given a statement to hospital security after the attack. 
the assailant had left Colin unconscious with marks on his neck, facial lacerations, a bruised eye, and blood on his right ear. Upon regaining consciousness thirty minutes later, Colin had told the head of hospital security, A white man came in my room. He was wearing a white shirt, dark brown pants, had blonde hair and blue eyes. He was about five foot eight inches tall. He said to me, I hate all you niggers. I hate all you niggers. I hate all you niggers. I'm going to kill you. The security officer asked Colin if he knew his assailant or any reason for the attack, and he responded no. Doctors decided it was necessary to perform an emergency tracheotomy due to the excessive swelling of his neck muscles. There had been a delay in reporting the incident to Buffalo police, so Colin was in surgery by the time officers arrived. Normally, an assault at a county medical center would not have been reported to them at all. But the decision was made to do so because of the ongoing twenty-two caliber killer investigation, and that this had involved an attack on a black man by a white man. Detectives Mel Lobbett and John Reagan had arrived with a state police investigator. They questioned the staff and had the patient's room photographed and dusted for fingerprints. The nurse explained that she was passing by Colin Cole's room at 3.30 p.m. when she noticed the door was closed. The door had been open when she'd passed by on her earlier rounds. Entering the room, she saw the patient on the floor with a white man standing over him. The white man told her that the patient had fallen out of bed and hurt his head. As she approached to assist the patient, she asked the white male why he did not call for help, whereupon he fled the room and hurried down the corridor in the direction of the elevators, catching the attention of some other hospital staff along the way. The nurse was shown a composite of the twenty-two caliber killer. She said it closely resembled the man. Other members of the task force had been called in along with Assistant D.A. Joseph Mordino. Deciding that the assailant could possibly be the twenty-two caliber killer, the details were relayed to the command post. Cole had been under heavy guard since, and security throughout the Erie County Medical Center had been bolstered in the wake of the attack. At the request of County Executive Edward Rutkowski, the county legislature had allocated $24,000 for the immediate hire of additional security officers. Colin Cole was not unknown to police prior to the dramatic and much-publicized strangulation attempt. He had a considerable rap sheet dating back to the 1960s, mostly for prostitution and loitering, though he had been convicted on a grand larceny charge in the late 1970s that involved the beating of an elderly man. Colin had done time for that offense and had in fact just been released from Attica Prison in January 1980. His most recent arrest occurred in April. Colin was a homosexual and transvestite who made his living as a prostitute and female impersonator on Chippewa Street in the city's red light district. His street name was Wilma. In his younger years, according to some vice cops, he had passed for a fairly good-looking woman, and Wilma was not averse to rolling johns for extra cash, beyond the fee for services rendered. A prominent forensic psychiatrist for the county had contacted police and suggested that Collins' activities prior to checking into the hospital at 11.20 a.m. on October 9th should be checked. In a meeting with investigators on October 20th, the psychiatrist, who specialized in criminology, 
advised police to take a careful look at Cole in regard to the slayings of the two cab drivers, and further, that he should be looked at as a potential suspect in the homicides and even in his own assault. In observing the case, the doctor had found what she labeled as remarkable similarities in the victim and suspect syndrome. Since a nurse had interrupted the assault and witnessed a white man with a cord in his hand fleeing Cullen's room, the legitimacy of the attack was not in question. Police certainly needed to speak with Cullen about what had happened as well as anything he might know about Parlor Edwards or Shorty Jones. Cullen was in the know when it came to street vice. In addition, one of Jones's associates had told investigators that two weeks before his murder, Shorty had complained that a black male he referred to as Drag Queen owed him money. The informant didn't know the identity of Drag Queen, but Shorty had voiced this while they were discussing narcotics. Colin Cole had been admitted to the Erie County Medical Center on October 9th for a drug overdose. Ten days passed before investigators were able to communicate with Colin. In the first of his interviews with John Reagan and investigator Richard Cryan of the state police, Colin confirmed that he knew both Edwards and Jones and had been a passenger in both of their cabs in the past. Shorty, he said, would transport him around the city and never charge the fare. Shorty dealt in marijuana, cocaine, and PCP, according to Colin, and he pimped for both white and black girls and for homosexuals, in addition to using his cab to run numbers. He had last seen Edwards and Jones about two weeks prior to the murders. As for the attack on himself, at first he claimed he had nothing to add about the man who had tried to strangle him. Investigators spoke with Colin on multiple occasions. He didn't seem to have a problem talking with police, but getting reliable, consistent information from him, particularly on the strangulation attempt, was proving no small task. When shown the latest composite drawing of the twenty-two caliber killer, he at first said it looked similar to his attacker, but later stated it didn't resemble his attacker nor any of his tricks, most of whom were black. By turns, he could be flirty or capricious. As a witness, he was tiresome. Captain Henry Williams at one point wearily remarked to him, You know, Colin, I'd even crawl in bed with you myself if you'd give me a straight answer. On October 24th, John Reagan and Richard Cryan spoke with Colin again about anything he might remember of the attack. After about an hour, Colin revealed that he knew the man who had strangled him. He and the man, who here shall be called Darren, had met a few years ago when they were doing time at Wendy Prison, and Darren had come to live with Colin at the Royal Arms Hotel on Utica Street after his release from Wendy. Darren was a burglar and had accumulated about $2,700 in heisted cash. Colin had walked out on Darren and taken the $2,700 with him. He didn't see Darren for a while, until the afternoon of October 10th, when Darren confronted Colin in his hospital room about the betrayal and then tried to strangle him. Officers retrieved some mug shots, including Darren's, and brought them to Collins's room. He picked out Darren's mugshot as the man who had attacked him and, in the presence of family members, gave a deposition. Though the attack on Colin Cole had been hastily folded in with the task force, 
coming just a day after the two horrific cabbie murders, and because of knee-jerk fear that the blonde strangler could be the mysterious blonde assassin, there were a number of factors from the outset that tended to cast doubt on the twenty-two caliber killer scenario. Skipping the question of why a hit-and-run gunman would opt for strangulation and count on getting lucky enough to find a black male in a room by himself at the county hospital, why would a killer looking for a random victim go up to the seventh floor, so far up from the convenience of any easy escape route to the street, particularly when there were many black male patients on the lower floors of the hospital? Despite what had been announced to the press and the public, the three prime witnesses to the attack on Cole, the nurse and staff members who saw the suspect flee, had described a man who looked markedly different from the descriptions of the twenty-two caliber killer. All three said the man had bright yellow blonde hair, not dirty blonde. All, including Cole, said he had blue eyes. None of the twenty-two caliber witnesses had given an eye color. The strangler, described by witnesses as five feet two to five feet four, also seemed to be much shorter than the September shooter, although Cole had initially pegged his height at five feet eight. Then there was the other detail that came to light. Someone had asked for Cole's room number before the assault. Ed Cosgrove had been in a no-win situation with the Cole attack. To withhold all information on the incident would have created suspicion and mistrust in sectors that were already apprehensive about his commitment to the investigation, especially if the attack could later be definitively linked to the September shootings and or the cab driver murders. In the interest of keeping the community informed and demonstrating that the task force was responding immediately to any suspicious white-on-black attack, he had called the press conference that night. Based on information from the nervous hospital employees and perhaps some details that had been lost in translation, the announcement was made that the strangler appeared to be the same maniac. The story had instantly blown up. Reports of the attack on Colin Cole referred to the nurse as the star witness in the series of brutal slayings. Hospital staff who had witnessed the attacker flee or believed they had, were reportedly receiving 24-hour police protection, including an elderly hospital volunteer who claimed he saw a blonde man in the employee locker room two hours before the attack and feared it might have been the strangler-slash-killer. Though Ed Cosgrove continued to state at press conferences that no connection had been established between the shootings and the cabbie murders, the notion that all six murders, as well as the strangulation attempt, were the work of the twenty-two caliber killer had nonetheless been firmly ingrained in the public's mind. Details and fine print aside, the narrative had been established. All seven crimes were related. All were racially motivated. The crimes were, after all, being investigated collectively by the task force, giving the impression they must be connected while headlines and broadcast news touted the murder probe, consistently referring to the six killings and citing Colin Cole as the seventh victim, all of which further played upon the primordial fear of an invincible boogeyman, capable of all manner of brutality, able to slip effortlessly into the shadows once his evil deeds were done.
Cosgrove was asked daily by the media whether a link existed between the two sets of murders. When the question came up again at a press conference in mid-October, Cosgrove stated, as usual, there is no evidence to link them, but added, are we concerned that there might be a relationship between all of the slayings? Absolutely. The Courier Express translated this into a bold headline, D.A. won't rule out one killer, previously refused to consider any tie in all seven incidents. The single-slayer theory created a problem for FBI artist Horace Hefner as he tried to create a new composite sketch. Hefner had met with a dozen witnesses from the shootings and the hospital attack, and reconciling all the conflicting information was proving a challenge. Explaining the delay in releasing the new sketch, a source told the media, We have so many different descriptions that it would probably hurt a prosecution if they were released now. After several days' work, the FBI released five sketches in late October that were dutifully broadcast and published on front pages. One sketch showed the suspect with straight, short, light hair, while three depicted him in different hats, and one in profile with longer hair. The description was a white male about five feet six to five feet nine, in his early to mid-twenties, clean-shaven, with dirty blonde hair and a slender build. It was noted that the sketch was not supposed to represent the subject in the same manner a photo would, but to give a general description of his features. Once again, there was very little to distinguish what Cosgrove called the new and improved sketch. While the DA expressed satisfaction with the FBI rendering, there were many in law enforcement and the general populace alike who did not find it either much of an improvement or particularly helpful. As one dismayed black resident was later quoted in a local newspaper, Do you know how many white people look like that? More daunting to investigators was that there was no guarantee the sketch represented one suspect. Faced with all the conflicts, the FBI had done their best to produce a boiling down of descriptions from witnesses to several different crimes. In other words, the facial characteristics quite possibly of more than one individual, had been melded into an overall portrait. Cosgrove stressed at press conferences that the composites should not be construed as a photographic likeness. He believed that the new sketches were much more accurate than the first had been and hoped they would awaken recognition of someone with the same general features. He felt confident that the sketches would generate a new flow of information to the command post. On this last point, he was correct. The hotline was flooded with calls, all of which had to be checked out. This influx of new leads on the amalgamated blonde boogeyman privately caused frustration for the most informed detectives, who knew damn well they had three separate cases on their hands. Edward Cosgrove had decreed strict confidentiality for the task force, and thus the emerging details on Edwards, Jones, and Cole were not released during his press conferences, reiterating that he himself was the sole source of information. He played his cards very close to the vest and insisted that all those in and around the task force, which had grown to 185 members, do the same.
As one law enforcement official had told inquiring reporters outside the command post, I can't even tell you what sandwiches we're ordering for lunch. But the media had their sources, of course, and they were definitely eager to report something more than same old accounts of the daily closed-door meetings of various politicians who had little to offer aside from restating their grave concern over the slayings. On October 22nd, the Buffalo Evening News ran a story headlined, Taxi Killings May Be Linked to Betting War. Similar stories and whisperings began to crop up, revealing the discovery of the policy, betting slips, that had been found in the cabs, and some details on the connections and criminal histories of the last three victims. An October 24th article in the Courier Express divulged that Colin Cole might know his attacker and that the assault had occurred following an argument. By the next day, newspapers reported that probers had ruled out a single slayer. Sources inside the investigation had tipped them off that all evidence indicated the shootings, cabbie murders, and strangulation attempt were three separate cases. News stories revealed that Edwards and Jones were numbers runners and that both had worked for the same cab company in the past, a company well known to police for trouble, one source was quoted. Ernest Jones was known to keep company with a white woman, and his blood-stained taxi had been found not far from where this woman's father lives, while longtime prostitute and street crime virtuoso Colin Cole had been involved with the man who tried to strangle him with a telephone cord. Murders over a numbers racket dispute obviously didn't fit the narrative of a white racist assassin or a national plot to eliminate black men, nor did an altercation between two ex-cons over stolen money and spurned affections. For some, that was a problem. The premise that all the crimes had been the direct byproduct of racial hatred was by now a theme in which many individuals, black and white, were heavily and publicly invested. Eroding or otherwise resting this concept away, even in the interests of truth, was no longer an option for some, particularly those devoted to what they viewed as the greater crisis at hand. To that end, the victims had been eulogized as symbols and martyrs of all that was wrong in society. The Catholic priest who conducted the funeral service for Shorty Jones had spoken of him as a peacemaker who had helped quell racial tensions in the Commodore Perry housing projects, saying that it was ironic that a man who did so much to restore peace between black and white citizens should die in what is believed to be a racial incident. The priest blamed Shorty's death on a sick assailant. He caught this sickness from somewhere and we as white brothers and sisters may be passive or active carriers of the disease that conveys support to this sick killer, he said. The unequal housing, education, and employment opportunities for our black and brown brothers convey to the sick person support that he is justified in his sick ways. Calling for change and an end to racial slurs, he told the mourners, if we don't actively try to put an end to those racist conditions, then we are supporting the actions of this sick person and others like him. U.S. President Jimmy Carter had taken a special interest in the case. Briefed by New York Governor Hugh Carey 
and Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan on the calm but serious situation in Buffalo, Carter had mobilized additional federal resources and personnel. As a result of the president's intervention, Charles P. Monroe, deputy director of the FBI's criminal division, and Drew S. Days III, assistant U.S. attorney general in charge of the department's civil rights division, were dispatched to Buffalo to review the investigation. Monroe had played a key role in the FBI's probe of the sniper attack on civil rights activist Vernon Jordan earlier that year. Speaking at a press conference at the Buffalo airport, Monroe said that civil rights is an area of my expertise. The FBI still had not made a determination on whether the civil rights of any of the murder victims had been violated. With so much focus on civil rights, still cited as a key requirement for the FBI to assume jurisdiction in the case, and the foundation firmly cemented on the platform of racially motivated slayings, the revelation of facts that cast doubt on this premise were met with resistance and even outrage. Following reports that Colin Cole knew his assailant, the Reverend Bennett Smith went to see Colin at the county medical center. Smith emerged from the meeting and announced to the press that Colin Cole did not know his attacker. Mr. Cole substantiated that the assault on him was the result of a racial encounter. He had never seen the man before and did not know him, Smith said. There is a mentally disturbed person out there somewhere who has killed six black men, Bennett Smith angrily told reporters. There may be more than one killer responsible, but the murders have all been directed at black males out of hatred for blacks and for no other motive. Smith and other black leaders lambasted the press for revealing details of the victims' criminal histories. Blacks don't care about that, Smith snapped. Catch the killers. We don't want to read the background of the victims. They also resented the questioning of victims' family members by investigators, though this was standard procedure in any homicide investigation. Tempers flared again when Ed Cosgrove conceded at one of his press conferences that he could not rule out the possibility of a black assailant in the cab driver murders. John Douglas of the FBI was experiencing a similar pushback in Atlanta where he had been called to develop a suspect profile in the Atlanta child murders. Investigators there had been looking for a white offender. When Douglas concluded the offender was black, as he would later recall, they didn't like it. His predictions and suggestions were dismissed as crazy. Eventually, each proved to be true. The murders in Buffalo and Atlanta had thrust both cities into the national spotlight. In both cities, the killings had unleashed widespread fear and set the great wheel of racial politics in motion. Bloodshed and racial discord were always hot topics. Buffalo Mayor James Griffin appeared on the ABC News program Nightline for a broadcast dedicated to the unsolved homicides in Buffalo and Atlanta. Host Ted Koppel pressed him on whether he thought the murders in western New York were connected to the Ku Klux Klan, or neo-Nazi groups, as asserted by some black leaders in Buffalo, who were also interviewed. Griffin responded that he agreed with District Attorney Edward Cosgrove that the murders were the product of a deranged mind. Speculation that the killer was psychotic had become another bone of contention. 
Cosgrove had been assailed by members of black activist groups and the NAACP for characterizing the killer as deranged or maniacal, although Bennett Smith had been quoted by a journalist from Newsweek as saying, There is no doubt the killer is mentally deranged, that premeditation is involved, and that the killings are racially motivated. When Ed Cosgrove was asked at a press conference whether his comments might give an attorney a ready-made defense in the event of an arrest, he answered, Any self-respecting lawyer who takes on this case would be insane himself if he didn't entertain insanity as a defense. This provoked resentment and anger from individuals who were already dissatisfied with Cosgrove's handling of the investigation. Officials of the NAACP called for a federal takeover. Hazel Dukes, state president of the NAACP, had flown in from New York City for a meeting with Cosgrove and a briefing on the investigation, after which she told the press, I'm unhappy with the investigation here. It has been 27 days since the first murder, and the killer still has not been captured. We will continue to request and push for federal intervention and an investigation independent of local efforts. No stone should be left unturned. Duke said she would also continue to press for intensified efforts by Cosgrove's office. While no arrests had been made, the task force had unquestionably put forth intense efforts. Every lead, tip, and avenue was being followed. Scores of white men were questioned. As one Buffalo police captain later recalled, they pulled in every white guy who was a little bit off. By mid-October, two men had been reported to the task force by tipsters had committed suicide. Another man who thought he was under investigation, erroneously as it turned out, cut his wrists. He had recovered and moved from the area but kept calling Buffalo police to ask if he was still a suspect. The whole spectacle had dredged up the weird and the depraved. Someone had left a heart on a shelf in the public library. Buffalo police responded to the 911 call and questioned two young women working there, who said that when they had returned from a 20-minute break, a black male had approached one of the women, pointed at the shelf, and said, Look at that. Someone left that. Someone left that for you. Based on the description, the library security guard said the man sounded like a bummy-type guy who was always hanging around the library. The heart was small, about two and a half inches long, and confirmed by the medical examiner as not human. It was transported to the morgue for further analysis. The command post received a call one night from an anonymous male who said that seven more niggers would be killed. The call was traced to a bar on Genesee and Jefferson Streets. Leo Donovan immediately dispatched officers. There were two payphones inside and one outside the bar. The owner and barmaid hadn't paid attention to who might have used the phones, but said there hadn't been any white patrons in the bar at all that night. The task force was also receiving calls from police agencies across the country with suggestions that the cab driver murders could be cult killings, or the work of small subversive organizations dedicated to the occult. The NAACP and other black activist groups were pushing vigorously for a federal inquiry into a connection between the murders and the Ku Klux Klan. The Buffalo FBI office had so far ruled out such a probe. Fears of a KKK link or conspiracy 
were not mere paranoia. In recent years, in reaction to the civil rights victories of the 1960s and subsequent federally mandated school integration and busing, the Klan had experienced a resurgence in membership and non-member support that was by no means underground nor restricted to states in the Deep South. In September 1980, robed Klansmen marched in Southington, Connecticut, and held two nights of rallies and cross-burnings, reportedly attended by some 800 people, to celebrate the installation of the state's first Grand Dragon. In April, three Klansmen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, had injured five middle-aged black women in a drive-by shooting that followed cross-burnings. Violence erupted in the city that summer after an all-white jury acquitted two of them and convicted the shooter on a reduced charge. Newsweek published an article on October 6th that detailed the growing paramilitary and weapons stockpiling activities of the Klan in cities across the country. By the end of 1980, it was estimated that KKK membership around the United States had grown to 10,000 members with 100,000 non-members donating money, attending rallies, or reading their literature. While these numbers represented only a sliver of what the Klan had been in its heyday in the 1920s, when membership had reportedly numbered in the millions and in some areas had effectively controlled state and local governments, it was nevertheless a significant and menacing surge, particularly since new young leaders of the KKK, such as Bill Wilkinson, so-called Imperial Wizard of the Invisible Empire, was eschewing the secrecy and hooded anonymity of their forerunners in favor of public marches and active recruiting. In the waning months of 1980, as the hunt for serial killers preying on blacks was underway in Buffalo and Atlanta, Wilkinson had plans to appear on the Phil Donahue show on television and was giving an extensive, no-holds-barred interview to Wayne King of the New York Times for a Sunday magazine feature. Titled, The Violent Rebirth of the Klan, it was published in the Times magazine on December 7, 1980, and profiled other Klan leaders in addition to Wilkinson. Some of the new KKK chapters were attempting to rebrand themselves not as racist, but simply as pro-white, obviously hoping to lure those who felt disenfranchised by shifting demographics and the lagging U.S. economy, playing on fear and vulnerability, as all adept cult leaders do. A few branches were even opening their ranks to Catholics, a group the Klan had long sought to eradicate, or at least suppress. There had been no groundswell of Catholics responding to this magnanimous offer, however, and the KKK had not seen any appreciable uptick in membership in cities with large Catholic populations, which Buffalo had. Buffalo police had in fact investigated the possibility of a link to the KKK or neo-Nazi groups. In early October, detectives Harold Frank and Matthew Parsons had traveled to Syracuse to meet with a former Buffalo resident who supplied them with information on a small group of avowed Klan members in western New York, led by a resident of the east side of Buffalo named Carl Hand. According to the informant, a few years prior, Hand and a half-dozen of his friends, who were all white males currently in their early twenties, had proclaimed themselves the protectors of Schiller Park a neighborhood on Buffalo's east side 
The group met often at a particular member's home to discuss their philosophy and talk about getting people, which meant assaulting black males. The group had on numerous occasions attacked black males in the neighborhood and engaged in fights to protect the kids, presumably white kids, from area blacks. The informant said that the group had been in such fights during the summer of 1980. They kept a store of KKK literature and attempted to distribute it. He never heard them talk of killing anyone, but said that about three years earlier they had been responsible for fracturing the skull of a black male with a length of pipe in the Genesee Street Schiller Park area. Asked about any weapons the members might have, he said they had all types of knives, as well as firearms, and that some time ago police had seized a number of firearms during a raid of the home where meetings were held. All the members were heavy beer drinkers, but as far as any taverns where they might hang around, the informant said they had been banned from most bars in the area. Two years earlier, they had held a family picnic in Emery Park that was sponsored by the Ku Klux Klan during which the men shot at paper cops with a pellet gun and practiced throwing knives and hatchets into a tree. The group's leader, Carl Hand, was constantly preaching his Nazi philosophy. He often praised Adolf Hitler as someone who had the right solution. Carl Hand and several of his associates were already known to police. Far from being under the radar, Hand spoke openly of his beliefs. He stood on street corners trying to pass out his racist literature. He had immediately been a person of interest in the twenty-two caliber shootings, but was eliminated as a suspect when it was learned that he had been hospitalized for a kidney transplant during the time the shootings occurred. He had been discharged on October 6th, a day prior to the murder of Parlor Edwards, but it didn't seem likely that a man who had undergone such a serious surgery would have the strength to carry out a sustained and brutal attack the following night. Han's followers had also been closely checked, but all were confirmed as either in police custody or out of state at the time of the murders. Leads on others with a history of racist philosophies and affiliations had been pursued but led nowhere. A postal worker turned in a business card from Knights of the Ku Klux Klan that he had found stuffed in the coin return of a payphone at Genesee and Bailey. The card read, Racial Purity is America's Security and had a mailing address and phone number in Louisiana. The postal worker told police he had been approached over the summer by a white male in his sixties, driving an old blue car who asked him to distribute the cards to all white families on his route. The postal worker said he had been approached two or three times over the past year about passing out material of a similar nature, each time by different individuals. He had always refused. Klansmen and Nazi sympathizers aside, the murders and their resultant publicity had emboldened some racist behavior from individuals who ran the gamut from the potentially dangerous to misfit lost souls. Detectives Paul Delano and Harold Frank paid a visit to a teenage student at Erie Community College, ECC, who had penned an ominous poem. The poem had been brought to their attention by the postal inspector's office as the young man had written it on the outside of an envelope that he then mailed. It read, The twenty-two caliber killer is at ECC, so all you niggers stay clear of me. If I see you, you'd be dead. I will shoot you in head.
If I see you in the hall, I'll spray your brains all over the wall. I'm so vicious you will see. If you thinks that's really shitty, I'll kill every nigger in the city. When they interviewed the teen at ECC, he admitted writing the poem on the envelope, but claimed he had copied it off a desk at the school, though he couldn't remember which one. He thought the poem was kind of neat and thought that his brother might enjoy it. The teen said he had a poor relationship with his father, who had told him that he thought the killer was doing good. When asked if he was under psychiatric care, he replied no, but added that he felt he might have an emotional problem with his father. He said he had no friends and described himself as a loner. Detectives took additional information and did some checking on the young male and his father, but ultimately ruled them out. Police were also sifting through crank calls, threatening notes left on cars, and letters received by police headquarters. Among the correspondence that bore scrutiny was a small envelope postmarked from Rochester addressed to Buffalo Police, Buffalo, New York. Inside was a note on lined paper, written in a slanting print. Stop me before I kill more, but I didn't cut out no hearts. Someone other did those. There was no way to determine from whom it had come, or assess the legitimacy. It was kept at close hand in the homicide squad in case the writer made contact again, but he or she never did. While the task force continued laboring behind a veil of secrecy, fissures that had erupted around the city were widening into chasms. Though no sustained incidents of racial violence on the streets had occurred since the weekend following the cabbie murders, undercurrents of resentment and mistrust had boiled up on both sides of the racial divide. And there was no question that in some quarters, despite the best efforts of clergy and perpetual soundbites from officials who praised the community for sticking together, a division of us versus them was emerging along racial lines. The climate of fear had not so much birthed racial antagonism and suspicion, but had rather unearthed that which had lain dormant. Newsweek published an article on October 27, 1980, about the spree of murders in Buffalo and Atlanta. Under the headline, The Fears of Black America, it summarized the crimes and touched on other killings of blacks across the country over the past year. The article began with a quote from Stanford University historian Kennel Jackson that perhaps best illuminated a collective feeling. When you pick up the newspaper and read about this black being killed here and another black being killed there, it does something to your psyche, something bad. It leads to the perception that it's suddenly hunting season on blacks again. A random phone survey of 300 black families in Buffalo had been conducted in mid-October. 52% thought the police were doing a good job of trying to solve the murders. When asked if they thought an extremist group was responsible for the six murders, 28% responded yes. 27% said no, and 43% declined to answer. 60% said they feared for their personal safety. Fear had taken root in the white community as well. Fear of riots and reprisals, and a redux of the week in June 1967, 
when a portion of the east side of the city had been torn asunder in what the New York Times described as a four-day rampage by Negro youth. Gangs of angry blacks, as many as 1,500 individuals in total, according to an estimate from the Times, had roamed the ghetto setting fires, breaking windows, looting, clashing with police, and attacking whites indiscriminately. Scores of people were injured, more than 100 arrested. Assemblyman Arthur Eve had urged an end to the violence, but referred to the riot afterward as only logical as a result of high unemployment, slum housing, and poor relations with the police. The great divide in perception had never been more apparent than in the aftermath. While many blacks blamed the riot in large part on poor relations with the police, Buffalo Police Commissioner Frank Felicetta had disagreed, saying that relations between his department and the city's 100,000 black residents were excellent and expressing surprise that the race riots then sweeping the country had similarly broken out in Buffalo. I would have been willing to bet anything that we would never have had a riot here, Felicetta was quoted. Arthur Eve had countered, saying of the police, they're bigoted. They live in the suburbs and have no idea what goes on in the Negro areas, nor any respect for the people living there. The viewpoints had been so strikingly divergent that one visiting government official had wondered aloud if the opposing sides were talking about the same city. All righty. Context of white supremacy. So that is audio segment number one. Two quick corrections. Strive for accuracy. Gusty says that all the time. Correction number one. I said in the beginning today that George Bush, George H.W. Bush was vice president during the audio segment that we heard when he said that Ronald Reagan's record was good. He said Ronald Reagan's record as governor. I forgot this was during October of 1980. So he was not vice president at the time. He was on the ticket running for vice president, along with his running mate at the time, governor of California, Ronald Reagan, not president. So one correction right there. I thought that was really important. Uh, and one other correction. I wanted to get it out. Make sure I get it in before we, Oh, the chapter. I, for some reason last week, I looked at the chapter and I thought it was October 22nd or excuse me, October 20th through uh, October 22nd. That is not the chapter it is October 20th through December 22nd. So it is not just two days. We're going all the way through the end uh, of the 1980 calendar year. Two quick corrections. Third, this is not. A, well, it is a correction. This is not my correction. This is a correction for the author. I normally don't you know, hop into commenting on the book, but I mean, hey, whatever. Again. The cow's first program back on the air was with Chet Detlinger. His book, The List, he co-authored on the so-called Atlanta child murders. That is a case Gus knows very well when she says John Douglas of the FBI was experiencing similar pushback in Atlanta where he had been called to develop a suspect profile in the Atlanta child murders. Incorrect name. Investigators there had been looking for a white offender. When Douglas concluded the offender was black, as he would later recall, they didn't like it. His predictions and suggestions were dismissed as crazy. Eventually, each proved to be true. That is not true 
at all. Same point I had to make with Matt Greider. Same point I've had to make for years with so many people when they talk about this case. No one was ever even charged for one of those missing black children in Atlanta. So I don't care what the profile is. Nobody was ever charged. So whatever. I have no idea who the Atlanta child murders. You don't have a conviction. You don't have a charge. Wayne Williams was charged with killing convicted with killing two black males who were well over 20 years old. They are not children. So with Garden, since that's explicitly what was said, Atlanta child murders, they never charged anyone. So I have no idea who is responsible for all these missing children. Apparently they don't either. If it was Wayne Williams, I suspect they would have charged him. And a number of the black parents who lost their primarily black sons stated the exact same logic. Not all. Some of them do think Wayne Williams did this, but some of the, at minimum, if he did it, charge him. You got the goods. You got the evidence. Charge him. That didn't happen context of white supremacy didn't happen in the buffalo case either have to keep that in mind black lives matter so they say uh the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 720 one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate in a game make sure you have listened to the book if you have commentary one of our listeners investors wrote in uh, greetings, Gus. I found Sunday's program with Dr. Sean Lay on the KKK in Buffalo. How timely is that uh, program and your commentary about it? Very constructive in terms of my process of learning. A 40-year-old suspect racist killed an 8-year-old black child named Quarius. I think that's it. Quarius. Q-U-A-R-I-U-S. Quarius. Naqua. N-A-Q-U-A. Dunham around Memorial Day in what is described as a random shooting in a game South Carolina while the child was riding in a car the excuse given for the suspect, suspected racist was that he was high on meth have not heard a lot about this incident me either I'll check on that one chapter 7 number 1 Colin Coles she saw the patient on the floor with a white man standing over him Known homosexual, transvestite, prostitution. This attack seems very different from the previous ones, being deep inside a public building as opposed to out in the open. Indeed. Even though I guess the Topps grocery store, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's still private closed door, but I mean, grocery store parking lot is kind of public. That's not the most private place. I'd say kind of the Burger King parking lot in broad daylight is not the most private either. But yeah. 
Definitely different. Number two, Reverend Bennett Smith announced to the press Colin Cole did not know his attacker. Smith and other black leaders lambasted the press for revealing details of the victim's criminal histories. Blacks don't care about that. This was also discussed by Cal's listeners. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Has been going on with lots of the listeners. All this talk about, you know, Glenn Dunn stole a car and all this. Uh, number three, uh, September 1980, robe Klansmen marched in Southington, Connecticut, three Klansmen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, black male in a drive by shooting Newsweek. I had the KKK article on 10,000 members, a lot of interesting information about Klan activity up north. However, the author may also be engaging in a little racial focal pointing. Additionally, absolutely, as though only the racists are Klan members. Incidentally, that uh, Newsweek Klan article, I posted that online uh, weeks ago. Uh, probably at the either beginning of the month or right at the end of May. If you want to check it out, they have pictures of them at armed camps uh, with all of their uh, military <laughs> military gear, just like Peyton Gendron out practicing to shoot and kill. And even in the article, one of them he quotes and, and he says, "I'm ready to kill black people. I'm ready to kill police, whoever, for the white race." How is anyway? <laughs> you can check that out. I posted that article, and like I said before. Uh, the fear in the black community article that was in the same issue of Newsweek, I believe, like exact same week, everything. I went to get that article and it was torn out of the library hardbound magazine, University of Washington. Number four, teenage student at Erie Community College, ECC, who had penned an ominous poem. It read, the 22 caliber killer is at ECC, so all of you niggers stay clear of me. If I see you, you'd, you'd be dead. I will shoot you in head. If I see you, you'd be, oh, if I will shoot you in the head, if I see you in the hall, I'll spray your brains all over the wall. Are white people confused about racism, white supremacy? Question. Seems to verify what Neely Fuller has said. Racist child is well-versed. In the practice of racism, white supremacy by teenage years. Who takes the time? What what college student, presumably, pauses their studies? I'm studying, you know, molecular physics, chemistry, biology, you know, whatever else. I'm here doing this, doing that, pledging at the fraternity, you know, got lots of things that I'm doing, got to talk to my parents and all the rest of it, walk the dog, and, oh yes, they're killing the niggers. Let me stop and write a poem about these niggers being killed and their hearts being butchered and cut out of their bodies. Hmm. Number five, the climate of fear had not much, had not so much birth racial antagonism and suspicion but had rather unearthed that which had lain dormant great example of the use of multiple metaphors within the same sentence the global system of racism white supremacy is never dormant there are no days off for racist man racist woman racist child they're writing poems at school man and college no less that's why I said, like, go to the university library, community college, even you might get to find literature like this in addition to constructive information. We'll share some of the other emails as well uh, from folks. Let's see. We'll get to the phone lines. The number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564 
pounds Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Hey, Gus. Oh, well, you know what? Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and uh, listeners. Um before I comment on the book, I wanted to comment on your um, uh, your opening video and your opening monologue uh, that you had played before the recording. Um, you know, it mentioned the National Guard being called in during that situation. And I know you asked uh, you asked the question of it, were there any time blacks call for the National Guard to come in? And I would attest that in Chicago. Uh, there have been a lot of black people that have been calling for the National Guard, uh, even though uh, I personally know and talk to people who are in the National Guard, and they tell me it's a bad idea. <laughs> so, uh, and, I, and I tend to agree with them. That, that is a very bad idea. And I think it would be a bad idea for them to send the National Guard for just one, one suspected racist. So, um, and then the, uh, the, 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 the use of the word buckwheat. Uh, which is, uh, you know, derogatory uh, black male uh, image uh, when you look at it. Uh, and and so interesting, uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, Saturday Night Live, Eddie Murphy character playing that character during that time. Uh, so I, I, I actually thought about that during that time as well. Um, <clears throat> going to the book, um, I personally don't like... Uh, nicknames uh when you're talking about this uh the use of the uh nickname shorty shorty jones uh you know i was just hoping she would be more precise on on the name um just didn't like shorty um when uh captain henry williams uh one of the investigators was talking to uh, uh one of the uh one of the survivors of the uh attacks uh, Colin Cole, uh, and he mentioned to Colin Cole that uh, he would crawl in bed with him uh, if he gave me a straight answer. Uh, I, 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 if, I, if, if my memory serves me, Henry Williams was a, uh, was a white man, I'm not sure, but uh, it sounds like some delectable Negro type uh, stuff. Uh, uh, and the, and the interesting uh, Colin Cole, who was a cross-dresser, I guess, uh, confused about his sexuality, but, I mean, also confused about everything else since he is a victim of racism. Um, one of the descriptions of uh, the killer, uh, an invisible boogeyman capable of manner of brutality, able to slip effortlessly into the shadows once his evil deeds are done. Um I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not liking that description because it makes him some sort of magical type of person. Uh, he's just a white man who just, you know, who is, is given the benefit of the doubt. Um, he's not, you know, some stealthy slipping behind the shadows. Um, we saw that in the opening of the book where a white woman uh, who was at the grocery store at the first killing never noticed the strange white man that was sitting there, but she noticed the black man sitting under the 
the lamppost. So, you know, that's just, you know, that's just uh, the white supremacy society that we live in. Uh, so he's not like very clever. He just knows that he's a white man who will get the benefit of the doubt. Um, when they were talking about uh, uh, the description and how law enforcement was, you know, questioning do, uh, about, uh, do you know how many white people look like that? And even though the FBI had uh, had uh, had had kind of boiled down the description, uh, you know, ac- according to several witnesses' composite sketches. Uh, you know, it's like they don't do that for black suspects, you know, because, you know, we all we all look alike and we're all suspects. And, you know, when when it's a white person and they know it's a white person, they want detailed evidence or I mean, detailed description. And, you know, since they don't want to, you know, bang up on white men, you know, who might fit the description. So uh, I find that interesting as well. Um when the Catholic priest uh, at Shorty's, um, I, I don't even know why I'm saying that, <laughs> at Mr. Ernest Jones' funeral, um, was talking about uh, uh, the killer, saying he caught this sickness from somewhere, and he and we as his white brothers and sisters may be passive or active carriers of the disease that could convey support to this sick killer. Uh, I thought about the clip that you played about white supremacy as a sickness. I think that was from uh, one of one of your regular callers, too. Um, the concerned politician, uh, I, I really, really was interested when uh, it said President Jimmy Carter and Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan from the Moynihan Report a report where no good black males refuse to be fathers. Uh, they refuse to build families, and this is why um, black families can't exist, and this is why black people are in the position they are in. So I thought that was very, very interesting, uh, considering that the victims of these killings are black males, and you have a guy who feels like black men they don't want to be fathers. They don't want to be part of families, and they just are no good niggers. Uh, and lastly, uh, um, they described uh, the grand uh, one of the grand knights of the KKK, Bill Wilkerson. Um, they labeled it the Imperial Wizard of the Invisible Empire. And I thought about that. I, I, I remember seeing uh, a quote from. Marcus Garvey in the uh, uh, in his uh, book uh, Philosophies and Opinions of Marcus Garvey, where he talks about how the, the Ku Klux Klan is the invisible government of the of the United States. So you know, and he said that decades ago. Uh, so uh, and still relevant to this day, you know, still the invisible government of the uh, of the United States. Uh, as of today, but uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Much obliged, sir. Invisible government. I think that's a metaphor. A plus, Daniel uh, Patrick Moynihan, black matriarchy, no count, useless black fathers, 
very frequently referenced in the system of white supremacy and I too has come up on this program many 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 times over the years I too had a problem with Mr. Jones being shorty uh, even if you know that was his nickname, nickname and that's what people called him I'm pretty sure Catherine Pellinero was not that cool with Mr. Jones where she knew him as shorty I feel like hey if you're an author you write professionally you're a best selling author like I'm Mr. Cosgrove might have some nicknames we don't know he's Cosgrove every time let's do the same thing for Mr. Jones I've seen that a few times that's come up regularly in some of the books that we've read where white authors get real casual uh, in talking about black people uh, especially in this case, they've been butchered and, you know, shorty. Uh, the caller who yielded, much obliged. Hey, how you doing? Um, victims from New Jersey. Um, I'm, you know, I'm glad the, uh, uh, the last caller, you know, he talked about um, uh, President Carter. So President Carter was in office when the uh, Atlanta killings and with the Buffalo um, um, 22 uh, shooter was on a rampage. Now, they said that he was disturbed. Um, if I recall, um, that's not the first time that uh, the president of the United States ran across an article or got some local news and was disturbed. And it's when he seen the uh, article of Nikki Barnes. And he was so disturbed that he dispatched the full might of uh, the FBI to descend on um, Nikki Barnes. So, you know, I wonder if he did the same in this case. Um, you know, when they was talking about the mixed reports of the height of the killer, I do agree with the last caller. You know, they want to make sure that, you know, they're not just, you know, roughing up. Um, any old uh, white person, but when it comes to black people, you know, just being black, um, you know what I'm saying, any black person will do, you know what I mean, regardless of height, size, complexion. Um, it says, uh, you know how many people look like that? I did one of, you know, that same, fixing that same um, um, frame of thought. They just want to be careful. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to terrorize the white uh, community. Um, bringing up the criminal history of the killer, so I mean of of the um, of the victims. Um, I mean, you know, the same practice is done today. So, black person commits a crime, they have no more protection under the law. They are not able to be victims. Um, the reverend, I was and I wasn't sure if he was white or black, but the caller said that he was white and. He was talking, you know, more or less like changing the language and, and just holding, chastising, um, you know, other white people. Um, when they said that, you know, we can't rule out whether the killer was black, I mean, from all reports, you know, from, you know, all the, vic well, the victims that survived and the people who, you know, did come across with some kind of information all pointed to a white man. But... Again, you know, they want to make, you know, they want to just kind of like try to rule out, you know, I mean, let's, let's, like, what's the metaphor? Leave no stone um, unturned. Um, the killer's 
you know, they kept trying to you know, basically say, you know, the person that's committing this killer, you know, the killing, they have to be somehow mentally deranged. Like, you know, they just can't be. So either you're mentally deranged or you're a part of some kind of white extremist group, you know. So this is how they paint the picture of a racist man, racist child, even racist woman, if they have some kind of hatred or, you know, commit violence um, against uh, white people. Um uh, they pulled, okay, um, it says uh, the person that left the heart, so white people being tacky, um, the jokes about, you know, black people are being terrorized, but the white collective um, takes time to find humor um, in a situation where black people are being terrorized. I mean, just like George Floyd with, um, you know, the knee, you know, mocking George Floyd and with the knee on the neck. I mean, you know, I don't know how many years this was ago, what, 30, 40 years or so, um, you know, so much hasn't changed. Um, the poem, um, they asked, uh, was the young guy, the young race soldier, was he under any psychiatric care? Again. To practice racism, either you have to be a white extremist or you have to be mentally deranged. Um, black self-respect, when, um, if I'm not mistaken, was the politician that said the riots were logical based under the conditions that black people are living under, you know. So, you know, there wasn't that whole um, respectability um, as they say, respectability politics. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, the, the blame wasn't put upon black people um, for lashing out um, because, you know, the community isn't direct, you know. So, yeah, and also I'll close with this as well. Um, I did move forward and look at a documentary on this, and I must say you are correct. Reading is more important than TV because it's definitely not as detailed as this book. I'll close. Mm. Reading is more important than watching television. I mean, hey, the documentaries that I've seen are 45 minutes. We had more than 45 minutes of reading for one chapter that we didn't even complete today. I'm not saying don't watch the documentary. I'm not saying don't check out YouTube, Netflix. We got a spectacular audio clip to begin with today because of YouTube right on to the listener. But I mean, hey, that too is, I think, like 40 minutes total. We heard more than 40 minutes of audio today and we didn't even finish one chapter. It's no contest. Reading is far superior to watching streaming content. Folks that we miss totally. Can I be heard? 
Yes, ma'am. Bay Area mom. Thank you for taking my call. Greetings to everyone on the line. Um, I, I just, after listening to the, the clip, um, the clip, the book, I missed the clips, the book, um, the, the, this part of the, um, this session, section of the book, the first part, it made me think to myself, if anything ever happens to you, don't answer a lot of questions. Because when I'm listening to the lady, like the wife of the, um, I think she was his wife, of the uh, the 41-year-old cab uh, driver, and how um, they asked her so many questions till she just, you know, she's giving them, oh, you know, your grand numbers and just saying all this stuff. Because it seems as if that's what they highlight, all the things he, he was running numbers out of his cab and it could have been a black guy that did uh, the assault to him because of his lifestyle. And then I think there was another um, guy um, that they said uh, he, he didn't die, um, or, um, but they said that he uh, he was also, uh, maybe he was a drag queen or something like that, and he went by an alternate female name as well and just with the stories, how they change when he was talking, it just kind of shows when they make when they're making these reports how shiftless black males are, and um, how you don't have empathy for these guys, even though there's so many of these crimes going on. On top of the, all the other states that have a lot of crimes against blacks, our children, everyone, all over um, the state. And it kind of desensitizes um, all the murders because of all the things that they say about these these guys, all the slander. It, it, it seems like slander. So what I learned was if I'm ever in a relationship with a guy, I'm never going to let anybody ask me questions to where I'm making him look bad. I'll just keep all that to myself and I'll maybe answer the question with another question, but I won't allow them to pull negative things about the the victim from me, nor will I allow them to continue to say negative things about the victim to me. So that's what I got out of the whole session. It was um, enlightening because they always make us, the victim of the um, crimes that are committed make us out to be the villain somehow or another. There's something negative about us. There's something bad about us. And they just dig, 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 dig. And they even have us saying the same things. So, and I'll mute my line. That's what they say about us. No, uh, no snitch. That's black people. Don't cooperate with the police officers. That's why we got. That's why they got to call the National Guard into Chicago. People just like Bay Area mom. They come and, you know, cooperate. Answer our questions. Now she said, no, no, they say, see, see, that's why we can't. That's why you got all this nigger crime and, and what they got black on black crime. Can't go to Chicago and hang out for the summer. Pam the Great can't do it because won't cooperate with uh, enforcement officers. See there? Uh, let's see. Much obliged Bay Area mom. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary. Yeah, yeah. Greetings, 
ladies first. Uh, Missy. Hi, guys. Hi, uh, cows listeners. I um, just wanted to share a little bit um, on Ernest Jones, or as the author was calling him, Shorty. Um, this author mentions a lot, and and a lot of the, the news articles that Gus has shared mentions a lot about hunting. Um, and one of the one of the quotes from this broadcast, uh, it said, it's suddenly hunting season on blacks again. And I just want to like emphasize that um, Mr. Ernest Jones, um, he was definitely being watched uh, for maybe a couple weeks. Um, he was the man that was dating the white woman, Zoe Fontaine. Um, and his cab was abandoned two doors down from Zoe's father and brother's house. Um, so they were thinking that it was related to him having, yes, <laughs> him having this white white girlfriend. But what I thought was very interesting was he was carrying a gun on him for quite some time. And like two weeks before his death, he stopped carrying that gun um, due to Zoe requesting him to stop carrying it. And he did have a knife um, on him, which was they believe at the the crime scene. Um, But yeah, he was definitely being watched and of course hunted and killed. And I don't think if somebody is hunting you, um, it's premeditated. I, I, I just think that the media, law enforcement and the judicial system are definitely preparing for a case of claiming that he had mental insanity and that he didn't know what he was doing and He was deranged. Um, And I I just think that there's definitely a conspiracy between those uh, institutions uh, to support white supremacy. So I agree with um, what the other callers have mentioned. And with that, I'll end my call. Much obliged, Missy in South Carolina mentioned already. And uh, the stalking absolute that point about Zoe asking Mr. Jones not to carry his firearm in the context of everything that and particularly hey we're swirling Joseph Paul Franklin is out killing black males just because they're with or standing in close proximity to a white woman in addition to the killings that are happening right here in Buffalo. And she asks him to stop carrying his firearm. Wow. Excellent point, Missy. Retired firefighter in Florida. Thank for your patience, sir. Hmm. Oh, okay, let's see. Let's try it again. Hello. Uh, yes, sir. We do can I start? You. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Okay. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, one thing about uh, this reading that uh, that uh, is obvious to me, uh, and you still uh, see it or hear it a lot uh, uh, today when it comes to journalism that's controlled by uh, white people 
is when a white person uh, practices racism, white supremacy, in uh, the fashion of directly physically harming uh, non-white people. Uh, they use these drastic terms of of uh, insanity and and uh, different things, which you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily deny it. But uh, what if what it does? It kind of like diverts away the what I think is the reality of white people being dedicated to practicing racism. And uh, and within that dedication, there's a variety of choices that they make in order to demonstrate that dedication. And that's not that's not talked about enough. Uh, it's not even talked about enough from the victims of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I, I I would I would understand that if white people if white people don't bring it out. Uh, but non-white people also are, are, uh, confused into, to, uh, uh, not understanding that that's what white people do. Uh, uh, they're dedicated, uh, in, insanity, mental issues, uh, that affects on this planet. I think, uh, everyone that's that's uh identified as a person under the global system of racist white supremacy uh also also from the standpoint of it always have to be some sort of uh uh quote unquote organized effort mr mr fuller talks about uh the uh, the weaknesses in four wallism and the efficiency into United Independent. And I would say when it comes to racism, white supremacy, white people understand that and they function as such. Uh, the white male who uh, just the recent incident in Buffalo, uh, he wasn't affiliated directly with organizations. Uh, neither was this individual that we were reading about. Uh, and uh, so uh, they become quite effective uh, in their, in their uh, carnage uh, and, and also personally, just white people in general uh, don't have to be affiliated directly with an organization to be very effective in practicing racism and white supremacy. And uh, those are just some observations that I have from listening to the uh, readings. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. I uh, think we nabbed all the folks. That incent, like I said, woo. everybody who pointed out the insanity and white people are deranged and all that. <laughs> Highlight. Make a note. Remember, all of this will come up again and again once we get, you know, 
way down the road or way further in the uh, text. Much obliged to all the folks who dialed in. See if I can get in some of my notes uh, and even maybe a report or two before we uh, get back. Let me see. Uh, I'm looking at, okay, let's see. Two of these maybe are worthy of sharing. These are newspaper reports from the time and right at the point that we're reading it. I'll do this one. So this is October 24, 1980. Carter Slayers of Blacks are a blight on nation. This is from the Atlanta Constitution, his home state. Uh, President Carter declared Thursday that the commit that those committing a rash of murders of blacks in Atlanta and Buffalo, New York, are a blight on our country and asked the Justice Department to investigate the killings at a White House reception for approximately 130 black ministers. They didn't say black scientists, black doctors, black police officers, black ministers. Carter said those sorts of people and the Ku Klux Klan have got to be caught, brought to justice, proved that they violated the law and put in jail where they belong. Attorney General Benjamin Civiletti and FBI Director William Webster had said Monday that the federal agencies were willing to assist the local investigation effort in Atlanta. Asked whether the president was saying the Klan was responsible for the Atlanta killings, Carter Press Secretary Jody Powell said, I do not know what he knows. He said he believes the Justice Department's interest in the matters originated with the Buffalo case. Six black males have been slain in Buffalo during recent weeks. Four of them were shot in the head with a 22 caliber rifle and two had their hearts cut out allegedly by unidentified white suspects. Some blacks in the city blame the KKK, though some Atlanta black citizens have said they suspect Klan involvement. Investigators had found no indications that the Klan is involved in the violent deaths of 10 black children and the disappearances of four more in the city within the past 15 months. A New Jersey psychic in Atlanta this week assisting police in the case has said she believes the suspect or suspects are black mm. the psychic Dorothy Allison spent her second full day here Thursday visiting more sites where the bodies of dead children had been found during the past 15 months she promised before her day began that she also would visit more of the victims mothers and that she hoped to have some answers for the police by the evening well apparently she didn't have good answers because this the killings in Atlanta went on for uh, quite a long time after all of this um, let's see uh, 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 uh. yeah I'll stop there uh, let's see any other of the news reports they have like I said all this stuff is available you can check everything they have a number seared to assist probe of deaths this is from the Hartford Cure oh man this is what I mean like when I say that people not knowing about this you just heard the president of the United States talking about the Atlanta and Buffalo cases together there is no limit or there is no uh definite source or limited amount of reports that mention Atlanta and Buffalo together. They're concurrent, as I said last week. So it, you can't talk about the Atlanta child murders, in my view, and not talk about this case. 
and vice versa. It should be impossible to know about the Atlanta child murders and not so-called and not know about the Buffalo incident. People talked about them together all the time. Uh, as in the So this is in the Hartford Curant. So October 22nd, the top article is seared to assist probe of deaths talking about Miss Allison and they've got her picture and you know, blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. Okay. The bottom article is Buffalo assault victims talk to probers. The only survivor of several recent attacks on black men got a face-to-face look at the white man who tried to strangle him in the hospital bed. Authorities said Tuesday, Drew Days, the third director of the U.S. Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, met leaders of Buffalo's black community to discuss Washington's response to the outbreak of violence against blacks. He called the session productive, but would not discuss details and it goes on to give a bit more information but this is what I mean like these incidents are reported together all the time Uh, specifically to notes from this week I will go quickly so that we can get to the audio wow I took a lot of notes let's see what we can cover I'll try and make make sure I get the most important points Um, hmm Let's see. Jefferson Avenue is mentioned so many times in this book. Again, the whole reason that we're reading this is because of the tops uh, Buffalo shooting that was on Jefferson Avenue. Uh, The next point, she says, right after the homicides of Edwards and Jones, talk among people on the street was that the murders were over a beef and the numbers racket. We have read about a black numbers runner before those of us who read uh, remember Detroit Red way before Minister Malcolm and all of that he ran numbers I don't ever ever remember him talking about someone getting their heart cut out over a numbers beef maybe I missed that chapter of the book they talk about some of the chapters uh, were hidden maybe that's one of the chapters where he talked about man did you know they were cutting out the hearts of black numbers runners had a beef I didn't hear that shot maybe razor yeah heart cut out what anyway uh, let's see Yeah, that I mean, as he said, black people didn't think that made sense at the time. I do not now. Uh, Let's see. There had been a delay in reporting this incident to Buffalo police. This is Colin Cole being attacked. Uh, Normally, an assault at a county medical center would not have been reported to them at all. But the decision was made to do so because of the ongoing 22 caliber killer investigation and that this had involved an attack on a black male by a white man. I thought this was important because there's so many. Some of the listeners already talked about witnesses not telling the police that, oh, we did see a suspect who was a white guy not telling him or willfully withholding this information from police with some of the witnesses and people that were talked to, even the guy that bragged that he was the killer and that information didn't get reported immediately. You got a delay. You got a, he gets almost strangled to death and this isn't immediate. I don't know why any assault at a medical center. Why isn't that immediately? He could have killed someone. 
And then, of course, they don't catch him at the scene. Nobody can get him on any of the security footage. Uh, let's see. Missy talked about how the newspaper articles, the language in the report, talking about these victims were stalked, hunted. I raised the question with Matt Greider. We talked to Joey 22. Uh, one of our investors brought it up last week about did Colin Cole know uh, Mr. His killer? Did he know Joseph G. Christopher? Joseph G. Did they engage in some sort of anti-sexual behavior? We talked about all that. Theorized about all that. Then hearing, hey, there were easy, easy black victims available. If you just want to go into this medical center and kill a black person, why would you need to go all the way up to the seventh floor? And even Mr. Cole was the only black patient, according to Matt Greider, on this floor. How would you even know unless you've been stalking? So why would you be stalking this particular black male? That's why I said it makes me link like, hmm, did he know? Matt Greider said there's no evidence that Joseph G. Christopher knew Mr. Cole. Definitely, again, how would you even know that he's here? Same thing with uh, Mr. Jones sitting at the bar, mad with this white woman. Go out and say something to him. Mm. Uh, Let's see. Somehow, Mr. Cole, they say investigators on October 9, in a meeting with investigators on October 20, the psychiatrist who specialized in criminology advised police to take a careful look at Cole in regard to the slings of the two cab drivers and further that he should be looked at as a potential suspect in the homicides and even in his own assault. Full stop. How in the world? A white witness, not just some, you know, crackhead black person who lies and stole a car and is on numbers, a numbers run and all that. A white woman saw a white man run out of the room. How is Mr. Cole a suspect in his own strangling? Tell me, I mean, at at minimum, maybe he knew this guy and he doesn't want to give up. How is he a suspect? That would just mean he's not, you know, being forthcoming about who the perpetrator was. Not, he should be looked at as a suspect too. You know, the Negro. Tricky. Strangle themselves sometimes. Blame it on a white man. Uh, Drug overdose is what brought Mr. Uh, Cole to the hospital in the first place. She refers to him by his first name. Uh, at times like that as well like if it's Colin Cole call him Mr. Cole you don't know any of these folks you were not friends with Mr. Cole you're not friends with Mr. Jones like what in the world uh, let's see if we have to pay attention that's one please let's pay attention to see if she refers to any of these white people dead or alive on a first name basis or nickname basis uh, shorty dealt in marijuana, cocaine, PCP, every drug known to, uh, he pimped for both white and black girls and for homosexuals. Whew. 
the full title is The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture. Should it be white supremacy culture or white culture? I think you should probably read that book and you will get a lot more out of this text. Let's see. I too our caller who pointed out man when Captain Henry Williams she doesn't call him Henry but immediately Captain Henry Williams you know Colin and that's a quote but that even she has it in the paragraph all the way through Colin so the same thing uh, you know Colin I'd even crawl in bed with you myself if you give me a straight answer now again did she get the notes police notes there are no footnotes I really hate that about this book like footnotes all of this stuff is in the newspapers and what have you. If you got police notes and what have you, just put a footnote down so we can verify. But is it, I mean, wow, he put this in the, the delectable Negro, human consumption and homoeroticism. Like what in the way? And uh, the sexual confusion, as was talked about, they train us, groom us to be whore. Same thing with Detroit Red. That's what he did. We could be talking about the exact same person. What is that? So this is 1980. So that'd be like 30, 40 years previously before he got things together. Less confused. Detroit Red, Malcolm Little. That's what we will allow you to do. Some crime and prostitution and all that narcotics peddling. That's what we and then we'll even arrest you from time to time for that. And allow you to service us servicing homosexuals I'm sure some of those that's not even identified when she said homosexuals I would I was automatically thinking white men and she didn't put that down uh, let's see anything else I need to I make sure read that about President Carter Read that about that. The Nightline segment, if we can find it. That's why I said that's why I said like this was wildly reported. Like, man, you don't even have to watch. I mean, read the New York Times or, you know, any of these newspapers. This was on Nightline. The president talked about this. How would you be everybody I'm sure doesn't watch Nightline, but I mean you would at least hear like, man, did you hear that? They were talking Ted Koppel about killing all the black people in Buffalo and Atlanta. Like how would everybody miss and or forget this? Collective trauma based amnesia. That at least is, I think is a part of it. Uh, let's see. Anything else I need to get in before we get to the segment? <clears throat> when she leaves where she explains the heart being left in the library, there's no footnotes and she makes it sound like some bummy person some straggly again same thing y'all have been saying racial narrowing if you practice racism you got to be crazy deranged mentally unbalanced or in the clan or some down and out bedraggled probably deranged white person she didn't mention as I already have repeatedly there were more or there was more than one heart left I already read the newspaper report where the heart was left at the Bethlehem Steel Locker black employee. Now did a bummy white person or deranged white person get security clearance at Bethlehem Steel to the locker room to put a heart there too? 
Hmm. And I'm bringing it up again just because she mentioned it this week with the Atlanta child murders, with all of the information that, according to Matt Grider, the beautiful white woman, Catherine Pellinero, had access to private information, police files and all of that. You keep bringing up the Atlanta child murders. She should have mentioned the Bowen Holmes explosion because that is totally separate. Wayne Williams didn't do that. And that greatly contributed to the environment of fear. In fact, I suspect that article about black people going to the newspaper and every day it's, oh my God, the children, the Bowen Holmes explosion was a huge part of that exact same month. Oh my God, what is happening to black people? Oh, wait a minute. It's one more I got to get in. When she talks about the police were doing everything that they could do and they were stopping white people, bringing them in to interview them. And some of the white people were so upset about all of this that they slit their wrists. And one of the white men uh, moved out of the Buffalo area. Come on. I didn't read it because I was just I skipped to the hard thing. Get out of here. And I mean, let's get out of here forever for Boston. When Charles Stewart lied and said that a black male, black misandry, uh, killed his pregnant wife and they destroyed black houses, knocked down doors and snatched up all kinds of black males for this crime. And this sort of thing happens. Oh, not to mention, we started the year with Anthony Broadwater. You get called in just for questioning and oh my god we are so white identified oh my god they ruined this white man's life bringing him in for what they didn't say we pulled an anthony broadwater and just started locking up any of these strange white men and putting them in jail for 16 years and then oh whoops you didn't that's not what they said they just brought in some strange white people for questioning which is what you are supposed to do I wouldn't have had a problem with them bringing in Anthony Broadwater for questioning if it didn't lead to whoops. And the same thing with Wayne Williams, the hair. Oh, yeah, this nigga did it. We got hair. Exact same thing with they played some of the exact same sound clips in the documentary about the Atlanta child murder saying, wow, these white people come in here with these lab coats and whoo, we got exact expert proof. He did it. Hair follicles. Oh, yeah. But I mean, all that sympathy for the you got all this sympathy for these white people brought in for questioning. I didn't hear that much sympathy for Shorty. And I'm saying it that way deliberately because who is Shorty? Some numbers running narcotic peddler. I'll stop there. We'll get to our next audio segment. If you have uh, audio or thoughts questions you didn't get to share write them down make a note we'll have time to share once we conclude audio segment number two context of white supremacy absolute madness edward cosgrove met daily with black leaders and community groups making himself readily available as he had vowed to do from the start with no real progress to report on the investigation however he was increasingly met with skepticism and reproach. Cosgrove was not the only target of ire, but he handled it with more fortitude than some. 
Police Commissioner James Cunningham was accused by some black officers and personnel at Build of not providing police protection for the Reverend Jesse Jackson during his visit. Cunningham responded that, Other than the President of the United States, no dignitary has been given more protection than we gave to Reverend Jackson. The commander of the Special Services Bureau claimed that Jackson never had less than eight plainclothes officers with him, in addition to security from Cheektowaga Police and the Sheriff's Department. Cunningham reacted angrily over Jesse Jackson's public criticism of him for not attending the panel discussion at Channel 7. Cunningham shot back that Jackson's entire visit had been staged by the TV station for publicity, which caused anger from black activists who insisted that Jackson's visit had helped calm a tense situation that might otherwise have turned violent. Cunningham refrained from attending most public meetings on the probe, inciting more rebukes. I have always said that there has never been a killer apprehended at a news conference, he snapped. Mayor Griffin met with community groups but faced similar criticism for not holding regular press conferences on the murder investigation. Griffin said that he agreed with Cunningham that there were more than enough press conferences going on. In addition to the fiery criticism the district attorney was taking from black leaders, his office also heard from citizens who were outraged over the investigation for starkly different reasons. He received complaints from people who felt that too much time and resources were being consumed by the probe. A few were blatantly hateful. One particularly virulent letter read, in part, What is the matter with the people of Buffalo? Five members of the despicable nigger race are killed and the town goes absolutely schizophrenic. I didn't see the town declare Unity Day for the multitude of white cops murdered by niggers and all the elderly couples and singles beaten or robbed by niggers, including me. Damn them. Let them know the fear we've experienced for years at their hands. I am seeing, along with a large number of others, a sad case of nigger coddling, reverse discriminatory treatment. I hope he gets twenty more before you catch him. It'll make life a lot more bearable for all of us. At the end of October, two new resources were established. The first was the Rumor Control Unit, a call center installed at City Hall at the direction of the U.S. Justice Department to provide facts and dispel rumors about the investigation of the murders of six black men and any related racial incidents. According to the director, the first five calls they received were from persons concerned about whether rioting would break out when the official 21-day mourning period was finished. Days before, some black leaders had warned that it might be difficult to maintain calm in the black community after the mourning period ended unless a suspect was captured. The second innovation was the establishment of a second tip hotline for the murder investigation. The first hotline that had been set up at the DA's task force remained in service and was open to all. The new hotline, operated at the office of the U.S. attorney, was a private number intended for the use of blacks only. Assistant Attorney General Drew S. Days had ordered the second hotline at the request of black leaders, who claimed it was necessary because of black mistrust of the police department. The hotline would be manned by black community leaders, 
who would pass the tips directly to the FBI field office and to the district attorney. The number was unpublished, presumably given out privately to black citizens via community groups. According to Bennett Smith, blacks felt that tips they phoned in to the DA's hotline just ended up in the wastebasket. The second hotline would have a built-in system to keep black leaders informed on the status of each tip. Mayor Griffin decried the whole thing as a bad idea. Griffin felt all information should be channeled through Cosgrove's office, and that a second hotline would do more harm than good. Ed Cosgrove made no public comment on the matter. For the first time since assembling the task force, he did not hold a daily press briefing. Politicians in Erie County were meanwhile conferring with politicians in Albany about the reward fund. At a press conference at the Buffalo Chamber of Commerce, it was announced that the reward had grown to $100,000, with the city, county, and chamber each contributing $25,000, and the remaining $25,000 raised from private donations. But there was a problem. State law prohibited the city from offering more than $1,000, and the county was capped at $5,000. Meetings were held to try and figure out a work around this dilemma. The Common Council passed resolutions. Advisory panels were formed. The matter would be brought before a special session of the state legislature in late November. Drew Days had declared that the six murders and attempted murder of Colin Cole had to be dealt with on two levels. A strong push to apprehend the killer or killers, and a strong assurance to the black community that all was being done to that end. The task force members, John Reagan, Mel Lobbett, Al Williams, Sam Slade, Tom Rowan, and their 180 fellow lawmen also had to deal with the investigation on two levels. Continuing the dogged day-to-day hands-on police work that was the only hope of ever solving the crimes, and avoiding the backbiting political sideshow it had all become. Among those who shunned the politics and the spotlight were the families of the victims. They offered few, if any, public comments, and had essentially receded into the realm of bit players in the spectacle of high drama swirling around them. For those who had loved the dead boy and the five dead men, the echoes of grief swelled high above the cries of acrimony, or even the calls for justice. No matter who would be arrested, no matter who would be elected or re-elected, no matter who would eventually collect the reward, for them— the end result would forever remain the same. Glenn, Harold, Emmanuel, Joseph, Parler, and Shorty were never coming back. On November 9th, Ed Cosgrove announced that a new composite of the twenty-two caliber killer would be released soon. We have a little closer and finer look at the person who was responsible for the twenty-two caliber killings, he stated during a radio broadcast. FBI artist, Horace Hefner was creating a new composite on information from six or seven witnesses that had been put under hypnosis. Reporters at the unveiling of the new sketch appeared a little baffled. It looked no different than the last. It's of the same individual, Cosgrove conceded. It's a refined view of the earlier composite. He pointed out that the nose was a bit narrower the face more slender, with a little more maturity around the eyes. Age, height, hair color, and clothing remained the same. 
November passed into December with no significant developments. Merchants and restaurants around the city experienced a sharp decline in business, dread of the twenty-two caliber killer and street crime in general, although the former had not resurfaced and the latter had dropped significantly, kept people away, particularly after dark. As Christmas approached, some black leaders decided that more needed to be done to express dissatisfaction over the lack of any arrests in the killings. On December 17th, the Black Leadership Forum, a coalition of area clergy, activists, and politicians that had formed in early October in the wake of the murders, held a press conference to announce a boycott of downtown stores. Leaders were asking all self-respecting black people and other citizens not to make any purchases at any of the stores on December 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in protest of the unfruitful manhunt. Lillian Meadows, a black activist and senior citizens advocate, sharply disagreed with the boycott. She pointed out that many of the stores employed blacks. She didn't want to see them lose their jobs and didn't see how a boycott would help matters anyway. Initiators of the boycott insisted that it was a means of showing concern that the investigation had apparently ground to a halt. There was little that Ed Cosgrove or anyone else could say to argue that the murder probe had stalled. They were still investigating, still questioning the occasional person of interest, but none of the two thousand leads they followed had panned out. On the same day that the Black Leadership Forum announced the boycott, Cosgrove submitted an itemized list of task force expenses to the county legislature. The highest expenditure was $17,555.57 for installation and maintenance of computers used to code, store, and organize 160,000 pieces of information related to the investigation. The command post expenses totaled more than $9,800 and included over $4,000 in payments to informants, transportation, and meals and lodging for witnesses. Medical experts and consultants had been paid $7,800 to date. The total came to $35,204.11. The task force expenses were published in the newspaper, noting that the probe had so far failed to produce any arrests. As 1980 drew to a close, task force members felt the keen burden that the cases of the past fall had grown as cold as the winter winds that swept across Lake Erie. Several times they'd thought they had a suspect in their grasp, but they were wrong. The task force would continue into the new year. They would start anew, follow more leads, go wherever the trail led them, though many believed it had gone irretrievably cold. They thought at least that the killings were over, but they were wrong. Part 2. The Midtown Slasher It is a man's own mind, not his enemy or foe, that lures him to evil ways. Buddha Chapter 8. December 22nd to 28th, 1980 Manhattan was awash in holiday spirit, or at least in holiday decorations. Of New York City's five boroughs, Manhattan shines as the tourist destination, 
the place that even locals refer to as the city. At Christmas time, the main plazas and public squares are decked in lights and giant, lavishly decorated Christmas trees, complementing the glow from festive store windows and the clanging bells of Salvation Army volunteers situated on corners. The man in the wire-rimmed glasses was a stranger in Manhattan, as were many of the people who thronged the streets on this Monday morning. Outwardly, there was nothing about him that drew attention or set him apart from the millions of others who hurried along the sidewalks or ran to catch the trains. He surely wasn't even the only one with a knife concealed in his jacket. John Adams, age 25, was not a stranger in the city. He lived on 153rd Street up in the Bronx and commuted to Manhattan on the trains. At 11.30 a.m., Adams was exiting the subway at 14th Street and 7th Avenue. He didn't notice the white man in the wire-rimmed glasses passing by in the opposite direction. Not until the white man suddenly sidestepped in front of him, hit him hard in the chest, and kept going. It took John Adams a moment to realize what had just happened. He stabbed me. He stabbed me. John clutched the area around his heart. Warm blood oozed through his winter coat and over his trembling brown fingers. He turned and saw the white man quickly boarding the IRT number two train. And then John Adams collapsed. Ivan Frazier, age 32, was another of the city's millions of commuters. At 1.30 p.m., Frazier sat on the E-train from Queens, westbound for Manhattan. When the train stopped at Eli Avenue, a young man wearing wire-rimmed glasses and a salt-and-pepper cap took a seat across from him. Fraser glanced up from his newspaper. The young man, whom Fraser later described as maybe about twenty-two and very innocent-looking, had sat down between two women and seemed to be trying to flirt with them. The young man in glasses asked both women for the time. One stayed mute and turned away. The other told him the time but kept her eyes forward. Ivan Fraser found this kind of cute the way the young man was trying to strike up a conversation with girls on the subway. Ivan smiled at the young man, and he smiled back, then looked down. Ivan went back to reading his newspaper. The young man wasn't having much luck with the ladies. He seemed to be out of lines after asking for the time, and they weren't paying him any mind. One of the women got up and left. A few minutes later, the train stopped at 50th Street and 5th Avenue, and the young man stood up. Both hands were in his pockets as he stepped forward to leave the car. Ivan saw the young man's hand coming swiftly toward Ivan's chest. He instinctively raised his left arm to ward off the blow. Startled, and wondering why in hell the guy had done that, Ivan jumped up from his seat and lunged after the man, throwing him up against the door. The young man jumped off the train, and Ivan followed. What's going on? Ivan asked. The young man stood facing him, shaking. He looked down at Ivan's hand, then he slipped his own hand into his right jacket pocket, pulled out a knife, and began waving it around. People on the subway platform started running away. Ivan looked down and saw that his left hand was hanging, bleeding, and then Ivan ran too. At 3.30 p.m., Luis Rodriguez, age 19, was walking on Madison Avenue between 40th and 41st Streets, when a white man with wire-rimmed glasses jumped in his path. Give me your wallet, the man reportedly said. 
Louise stopped short. Witnesses weren't sure if the victim handed over the wallet or if the white man grabbed it from Louise's jacket before or after plunging a knife into Louise's chest. The white man ran away. Louise turned slowly. I've been stabbed, he cried out. He took my wallet. He fell to the pavement. At 6.47 p.m., Antoine Davis, a 30-year-old from Brooklyn, was attacked at 37th Street near 7th Avenue. At 10.40 p.m., Richard Renner, age 20, was assaulted as he entered a candy store on 49th Street between Broadway and 7th Avenue. Sometime after 11 p.m., Carl Ramsey was attacked on the subway at 33rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. All three died shortly after being stabbed in the chest. All three were black males. Captain John Meehan was commander of the 3rd Detective Zone in mid-Manhattan. On Tuesday, December 23rd, Captain Meehan was conferring with several of his detectives on the series of stabbings that had taken place the day and night before. While stabbings in the city were not an anomaly these days, there were some very notable similarities in these attacks, four of which had been fatal. Luis Rodriguez had died in the hospital. All he could tell police was that the man who knifed him had taken his wallet. Antoine Davis, Richard Renner, and Carl Ramsey died before making any statements. Witnesses to the different attacks, however, had given a description that sounded remarkably like the same suspect. A white man in his thirties, of medium build, five feet seven to five feet ten inches tall, 150 to 160 pounds, wearing wire-rimmed glasses. All the victims had been stabbed in the chest with a single thrust. All the attacks had occurred around midtown Manhattan. Aside from Luis Rodriguez, the assailant reportedly said nothing to the victims before suddenly plunging a blade into them and then hurrying away. Manhattan detectives also had two strangely similar reports from black men who had been stabbed on the subway the previous day but survived. John Adams, attacked at 14th and 7th, was recovering at St. Vincent's Hospital after a four-hour surgery to repair the knife wound near his heart. Ivan Frazier had been treated for the stabbing of his left hand. Both survivors described an unprovoked attack by a small but strong white man in wire-rimmed glasses, who fled without a word. That made six victims within about a twelve-hour span, five black men and Rodriguez, who was a dark-skinned Hispanic. There were no connections among any of the victims. Captain Meehan recalled the teletype reports from Buffalo about the spate of shootings of four black men in September by a white man. He decided it was worth a call to compare notes. Meehan called Erie County D.A. Edward Cosgrove and Captain Henry Williams of the State Police BCI, both of whom were very receptive to the information. Cosgrove and Williams noted everything Meehan told them, and immediately made arrangements for two of their task force members to travel to New York City the following day. On Christmas Eve, Mel Lobbett and William Joe Cooley, senior investigator for the state police, boarded a plane for New York. They met with Captain Meehan, who then assigned one of his detectives to work with the visiting lawmen from upstate. Joe Cooley had joined state police in 1962. 
Melvin Lobbett had been a Buffalo police officer since 1961, a detective since 1973. Cooley and Lobbett had both been consumed by the 22 caliber killer investigation for the past three months. Catching the serial killer was top priority for law enforcement in western New York, one they'd been pursuing vigorously, which is perhaps why they were dismayed by the attitudes they encountered among their downstate counterparts. As Cooley recalled, the New York detectives didn't seem to put much stock in a possible connection with the Buffalo murders. They didn't even seem particularly alarmed about the attacks that had occurred in their own jurisdiction, as Joe Cooley perceived it. The files were scant, brief statements from witnesses, a photo of each victim, and a composite of the suspect drawn by one of their police artists. Granted, only a couple of days had passed since the stabbings, but there was something just a little too casual, a little too dismissive about the way New York seemed to view the whole matter, as if the attacks were routine rather than a possible sign that a serial killer could be roaming the state. After a while, Joe Cooley couldn't hold back. Is this a normal thing in New York? he asked. A bunch of guys getting stabbed in one area in a single day? No, it's not normal, the detective answered. Then you do have a problem, Cooley said, and it might just fit with ours because we've got a problem. Still, the NYPD detectives were skeptical. The Buffalo killer shot his victims. The guy with the glasses stabbed them. The attacks were months apart, and Buffalo and New York City were 450 miles apart. And none of the Buffalo witnesses had said anything about a guy wearing glasses, whereas all the New York witnesses had mentioned it. Cooley and Lobbett didn't feel that glasses versus no glasses meant much, nor even gun versus knife, not when so many other details were lining up, particularly the hit-and-run style of attack on black men by a guy with dark blonde hair. The New York composite did look markedly different than any of the twenty-two caliber killer sketches. In addition to the wire-rimmed glasses, it showed a man with a much rounder face, very short hair, a more prominent nose, and full lips. Though there were assurances of a continued exchange of information, Joe Cooley left Manhattan feeling that the NYPD wanted nothing to do with them. He also felt that New York had a bigger problem on their hands than they realized. There may have been some Manhattan detectives who tended to agree, especially when another black man was attacked in a subway on Wednesday. This victim sustained no injury as he successfully fought off the knife-wielding attacker. The description of the fleeing assailant matched the details supplied by the other victims. By the time the New York detectives got wind of it, though, Joe Cooley and Mel Lobbett were on their way back to Buffalo. If New York law enforcement was not yet persuaded that they had another serial killer, their local press was. They had already given him a name, the Midtown Slasher. Even the New York Times gave the slayings front-page coverage on December 24th, though they demurred from using the Midtown Slasher moniker. While Captain Meehan had his doubts about a connection with the Buffalo killings, the NYPD was definitely considering the prospect that the stabbings had been racially motivated. They received 60 calls from the public after news of the slasher hit the papers. 
a team of detectives was assembled to question witnesses and interview other recent stabbing victims. Though the New York newspapers brought up the twenty-two caliber killings and reported that Meehan had been in touch with authorities in Buffalo, Meehan commented only that information had been exchanged, and further that the NYPD could not say definitively that the slashings were related, much less linked to any murders in western New York. Ed Cosgrove gave much more weight to the possibility of a connection. We are aggressively pursuing the similarities between the knifings in Manhattan and the twenty-two caliber slayings, he told the media. The random manner in which the victims were chosen, the boldness of the attacks, the blackness of the victims and other similarities which we are not prepared to discuss, he was quoted, cause us to feel the same man may be responsible. Cosgrove said that his team was following every aspect of the New York investigation and that his task force was as interested in each development as much as if we were conducting it. By late Christmas Eve, John Meehan and his detective squad felt reasonably certain that the six or seven Manhattan knifings were connected, but they were even less convinced of a link to the buffalo slayings. Some of their witnesses viewed composites of the twenty-two caliber killer and said the gunman didn't resemble the slasher at all. New York papers wrote of the rampant crime that plagued the city and the weariness of New Yorkers who faced threats day in and day out. A month ago, one kept one's eyes peeled for a large black man brandishing a white cane, wrote the New York Times. Now it's a small white man wearing wire-rimmed glasses. By the weekend, both New York and Buffalo law enforcement officials told reporters they had discounted a link. The task force had even checked to see if any of the six Buffalo murder victims had been in New York City at any time before the murders. They had also consulted with authorities in Atlanta and other cities with similar unsolved homicides and bold assaults, concluding that the murders in New York bore the most resemblance to those in Buffalo. Ed Cosgrove told the press that there were no new developments in the investigation and that while the task force had initially thought the murderer in New York City could be responsible for the killings in Buffalo, that lead had not panned out. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. He sang the Christmas carol over and over again as he walked the unfamiliar streets, back and forth, round and round. He walked without aim, but not without purpose. He watched for signs, and when one came, he descended into the subways and got on the trains. Or he left the subways, re-emerging on the sidewalks to walk and sing Silent Night some more, and see if there was a church. He stopped often in churches, very many churches, even long afterward he'd be able to name a lot of them, where he would pray. He prayed all the time. He slept in a church basement. He didn't like this city. Days had gone by, and he was tired. He hoped that he'd done enough on this mission. He really wanted to go home for Christmas. His feet hurt very badly, and the seminary had turned him away. Again. All the time, he looked for signs. On Christmas morning, it was finally okay for him to go home. He put on his dress greens and went to catch a bus.
context of white supremacy. So that is where we will pick up next Thursday. We'll begin right at the start of Chapter 9, which is December 29 through the 31st, 1980. So this time I am looking at it correctly. So this chapter apparently is only three days. I thought we were going to get into the new year. No way. December 29 through the 31st is for next week. The number to dial if you have commentary is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you didn't get to share at all, no lollygagging. Uh, Go ahead and get your hand up and we'll make sure that you get on the line first. uh, And then we'll get everybody else as well. the let's see people who wrote in uh, one of our investors writes uh, chapter eight <clears throat> uh, Ivan Frazier 32 the young man described as maybe about 22 and very innocent looking Ivan Frazier found this kind of cute I smiled at the young man and he smiled back another example of how as non-white victims we are trained to not think of suspected racists as a potential threat that is a part of being white identified number two Antoine Davis Richard Renner Carl Ramsey all three died shortly after being stabbed in the chest all three were black males that made six victims within about 12 uh, within about a 12 hour span five black males and Rodriguez who was a dark skinned Hispanic with a population of 7 million in 1980 you could read about assaults murders on a daily basis in New York City I can't comment on my thoughts at the time of course since I don't remember these events however even this seems unusual even for New York City I wonder if the response would have been the same if the victims were white no way especially at Christmas time like you have got to be kidding (laughs) incidentally just that paragraph alone five black males and Rodriguez who was a dark skinned Hispanic it is a travesty and a crime now this book was published in 2017 so you know Dr. Welsing had been deceased for a year but Joey 22 had been published and I mean this case was there all these newspaper articles and such at minimum we could have (sighs) continuing number three the New York detectives didn't seem to put much stock in a possible connection with the Buffalo murders they didn't even seem particularly alarmed about the attacks that had occurred in their own jurisdiction the files were scant as expected black lives don't matter true today true anytime any era of white supremacy number four midtown slasher in 2019 james harrison jackson afghanistan army vet and racist white supremacist stabbed to death 66 year old black male timothy Coleman in midtown manhattan with a 26 inch sword i remember this case harris was described as harboring feelings of hatred against black males for the previous 10 years New York City Mayor de Blasio Cal Bell described it as an assault on the city's inclusiveness what does that mean? Harris drove from Maryland and was intent on killing more than one black male Mr. Coleman was residing in a house for homeless people at the time of his death I remember that incident Uh, we talked about it on the couch number five he sang the Christmas carol sing Silent Night 
If there was a church, he stopped often in churches, very many churches, even long afterward, he'd be able to name a lot of them where he would pray. He prayed all the time. He slept in a church basement. The religion of white supremacy, indeed. Uh, let's see. Uh, our caller, I think we missed. Uh, caller at 2262, did you have commentary to share? You should be with us, and then we'll get the other folks. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you guys for taking my call and greetings to everyone on the line um, and listeners. Um, I just want to point out the description of the uh, Joseph Christopher and how they conflicted with his description from the his uh, uh, murders in New York. I just thought that was um, another act of racism, how uh, the uh, Helmer Hefner, the uh, uh, the artist who drew him, uh, he drew him with the way the pictures look compared to how the person actually looked. I mean, for me, they look totally different. And they keep using this phrase or something about dark, dark blonde hair and dirty blonde hair. And I had to look that up to see what that even looks like. And from the picture of him, the black and white photo to what I'm seeing here, that doesn't look the same at all. Um, I just thought that possibly could be an act of deception to throw off um, uh, people from uh, black people from actually seeing this person and turning them in. But that's pretty much it. Thanks for taking my call. With us. Much obliged, sir. We did have reports of that. Uh, witnesses, white witnesses, deliberately misleading enforcement officials about what this person looked like. So... Yeah, and and just because we did read O.J. Simpson, uh, I think it's accepted frequently. Eyewitnesses are very bad at picking out details and descriptions and what did the person have on and uh, hair color, eye color, all of that are notoriously bad. And then racism, white supremacy on top of that. So lots of factors. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, Miss C, Bay Area mom. Uh, victim in New Jersey, uh, Henry in Chicago, retired firefighter. Uh, if you all have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, the part where uh, I guess the uh, the non-white black people set up a second phone line or second uh, tip line uh, to kind of. Uh, to kind of uh, compensate for uh, the DA uh, throwing away a lot of information. And then the mayor uh, talking about how the whole thing was a bad idea. Uh, obviously, uh, white people want to control the narrative as usual. Uh, you know, even when black people understand that, you know, uh, stuff like this uh, can get uh, misconstrued, through, thrown away. Uh, but obviously, uh, it just didn't seem like the uh, the officials in Buffalo uh, were really serious about the whole uh, situation as much as the black people were because they were the ones being under attack. So, uh, but because it wasn't white people that were getting off like this, then uh, you know. But then again, you had the the uh, the one uh, rampant racist who was uh, talking about uh, niggers were 
doing this and killing policemen and and they were robbing white people, but you know, at the moment black folks, especially black males, were getting offed. Um Peyton Jenkins' grandmother or something. Um I agree with uh, what the what the emailer said about um <clears throat> Ivan Frazier being the killer, um and seeing him as innocent. Um probably almost cost him his life uh doing that. Uh I always, you know, tell people, you know, when you're you know, whether whatever neighborhood you're in, you know, lock your doors. <laughs> and uh and even especially in the white neighborhood. Is, uh I don't I don't you know, obviously me, I don't I don't trust white people like that. Um and then this is uh the insane, you know, like uh this whole thing of his question of insanity or he's deranged, delusioned, you know, lunatic. Uh, Manhattan, uh, changing his venue, uh, actually attacking and killing uh, a few of his victims. Uh, I believe, I think they mentioned six, six people he attacked and Four of them he killed, uh, and also, too, um, you know, being on the train, watching them, and then uh, I guess it wasn't even multiple stabs. It was just one stab, and he killed four of them uh, with these uh, with these one stab. So for them to describe him as, you know, insane or deranged or anything like that, he seems very calculated to me, you know. So I don't find any proof that he was insane in this. I mean, he changed his venue and actually found another method to, to do this. First he was shooting people and he's strangling people. Now he's stabbing people. So this is, this is all intentional. This is calculated. So, um, But that's all I have. I mean, my Mm. Much obliged. That is something to think about. Anybody out there? So, if you had, you were only going to get one blow to kill somebody. It's got to be fatal, and you only get one strike. Could you make this a kill shot with one strike? I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, could be challenging for me. Other folks who dialed in. Yeah, Gus. Uh, Vic New Jersey. Um, real brief. Um, the the guy that, or I'm a legendist, the guy um, that went on a rant, basically about you know, I, I guess you know, talking about reverse racism and you know, you know, why why do we care what's happened to the Negroes and you know, just laid out a whole list of um, you know, atrocities that that black people committed on white people. Was there any footnote? Like, like, where did that rant come from? A news article? Was this, like, a police account of uh, a white man, white woman saying it? Hey, sounding like Gus T. Uh, I said there are no footnotes in this book. I highlighted uh, that passage. There is no 
footnote. So I don't know if this is because I mean, uh, people write letters into like City Hall or uh, elected officials and such. That happens all the time. Uh, but I don't know if this was something that was written in uh, to an official or what have you. But there's like nothing. There's nothing to signify where did this come from? Did somebody just say this after all of these years? Like, yeah, it just says, uh, let me get the full context. Uh, in addition to. His office also heard from citizens who were outraged over the investigation for starkly different reasons. He received complaints from people who felt that too much time and resources were being consumed by the probe. A few were blatantly hateful. One particularly virulent letter read in part. So it could just be that Mayor Griffin saved these letters. I know that's happened. I've, I've heard from many, 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 many elected officials and particularly around things with regards to racism, white supremacy, even Jackie Robinson, I think they said they they saved a lot of those letters. So it could have just been that Mayor Griffin or his relatives had this letter in their, you know, attic or whatever for the past 40 years. And then when she got ready to write her book published in 2017, you know, they pulled out some of this stuff to show her. But yeah, there's no footnote, no nothing. Mm, I mean, but do you do you think that, you know, just a hateful letter like that, you know, I mean, should that have been, like, archived, like, who wrote it, who sent it, where they're from, you know, do you do you think that that's something that's of importance? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I I took note when she talked about, you know, all of the, the hateful responses. I read at the very beginning because I didn't know if she was going to include it. I'm glad I did because she didn't. Uh, about the son of Sambo killer because she said that joke was being passed at the doctor's office. We read medical apartheid. They said the clergy was making jokes like that. Like, hey, let's make sure we get an understanding of why Peyton Gendron had an easy target. I know where the Negroes are going to be concentrated in Buffalo at their lame no-count East Buffalo target on Jefferson Avenue that we keep hearing about in this book. Let's get an understanding of why that is the case now was the case then. Absolutely. They should St. Jackie Robinson, all of those letters stand by your work. Whoever wrote this put your name on it date address what was your occupation at the time really that's one I would have liked a picture if this was a letter that was written in let's just get a picture of the letter because that's what they did they have some of those Jackie Robinson letters posted online let's see the person's name because they do this all the time like with the lynching uh, pictures these people they got facial recognition and all that identify these folks stand by your work and be proud I will mute. Did you have anything else? Well, no, no. I was, I was just saying because it's just real interesting. I mean, during a time of just where the black communities are being terrorized, and these are some of the letters that's pouring in. But every time that you have a guest and you say, "Hey, you know, you know, can you give me some racist jokes that you heard?" Oh, you know, I really can't remember them. But you have letters flying coming in with hateful rhetoric like this but you can't remember negro jokes all right sounding logical say 
they got whole poems written that, to me all those poems and such that we heard uh, in the first audio segment that's the same thing racist jokes they got whole racks of this stuff literally piled up in the attic and everything else and you can't remember one to share with us exactly exact son of Sambo that should have been in the book too that's what I mean if she has access to all this information no count Negro Gus who can't even get to Buffalo yet man I know she had to see that report son of Sam it's no way you write a book on this and don't get in son of Sambo and it's no way I'm going to talk about Peyton Gendron and not bring up son of Sambo them leaving hearts at the library at Bethlehem see even at the police department where they were saying they were putting up pictures of the suspect and to the caller's point about why the uh, suspect the composite is so bad I read the newspaper reports where they said black police officers said they had pictures of the suspect at the police precincts plural with my hero that also no way I write this book without including that because I mean man if the black people are saying the police aren't doing their job and then the black police are saying this other folks have commentary you got everybody anybody else assume there everyone is satisfied for this section I'll get in a few notes and then we will call it a session Uh, let's see already shared some of the they talked about Jesse Jackson uh, that he had a staged event for publicity uh, and they said that some of the black activists were upset because his uh, visit helped calm tension. We talked about what he said at the rally last week and him saying things that were logical. Hey, you got the white people have the whole court system and the police officers and an army behind them. All that was logical uh, and saying, hey, we can't just be out here and be reckless and emotional and retaliate or what have you and think that white people don't have all the means he said to come in and turn off the gas and I said or turn it back on so no all of that sounded constructive and helpful in my view I'm sure as I said hey if he's going to run for president shortly which he did do all that voting stuff too let's see uh, that letter see things like that letter that he talked about I feel like that that should be talked about right now with Peyton Gendron really all of the nigger coddling I would what does that mean does this sound like someone who's ignorant about white supremacy racism he said I hope he gets 20 more before you catch him that's this should be who is this person a dentist fire department police officer doctor water treatment plan I mean long list like come on um all this about having a separate hotline that's manned by black people there are no secrets in a system of white supremacy I mean okay you get black people to answer the phone call and you all don't publicize the number and all the rest of it as though white people aren't the ones who control the whole phone line and everything and then 
all this information at some point is going to be have to be transferred to someone classified as white anyway who can laugh at it make jokes about it might be transferred to the person who wrote that note so you know I understand we do the best that we can but pitiful uh, she did this name call at the end all first name Glenn Harold Emeth you are not these people's friends and again I'm just waiting to see that she mentioned any white people on a first name basis in this text um all of the leaders of black people are white. She has black leaders in this book throughout. She starts part two Midtown Slasher with a quote from Buddha. It is a man's own mind, not his enemy or foe that lures him to evil ways. Like, I have no idea how all of this applies. <laughs> like, what are you trying to? Is this supposed to be some justification or how we should think about what's happening here? Come on, man. Um excellent point I think that was Henry in Chicago about the white identification uh, Mr. Frazier seeing uh, his white attacker on the train is oh what a cute innocent white dude and all the rest of it um, I was just stunned with the volume of attacks in such a short period of time and tell me when they talk about Peyton Gendron and he drove all this way Conklin is like 200 miles hey this fella 450 miles whatever we will travel another continent Vietnam whatever uh, let's see anything else need to get in front page of the New York Times like I said this was widely talked about I don't know what case they're talking about they said the New York papers a month ago one kept one's eyes peeled for a large black man brandishing a white cane like what <laughs> like if people have time what? What is that? I don't even know what they're talking about there. I'll pause there. We'll pick up next uh, Thursday. Be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for neutralizing workplace racism. Much obliged for all the folks who joined us. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Sobriety would be best. You never know. Might be Peyton Gendron right next to you. Got to be alert, mindful. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, not on a mobile device buckled uh, we are doing all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim right. i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>